and welcome to Bury Our Bones With, the show that lives, breathes and dies the movies and TV shows you love. We are your hosts, me, Jimmy Murphy, and with me as always, the Robin Hood to my Robin Reliant, Mr. Ryan Etherington. In today's show, we'll be burying our bones with the 1986 David Cronenberg rubber-suited insect-based psychodrama that is The Fly. So join us as we kidnap Professor Brian Cox, throw him in a blender with a jar of flies, arm-wrestle some meatheads and do unspeakable things to baboons. I'm David Heathbrow, Ghost Finder. Now, there are many haunted places up and down the country that if I were to sit here and list them all, by the time I was finished, I'd be a ghost. <laughs> no, that's just a little joke, although I hasten to add that you should only joke about the forces of evil and the presence of a professional. I once knew a bloke who said that he didn't believe in the supernatural, and the next day he lost his car keys and his dog bit him. Now, you tell me that's not a sign of Beelzebub. But back to business. What I specialise in is determining if there is a presence within your home or office, but office do charge business rates. You and your husband are not trained to know if the fuse blowing on the kettle is a sign of faulty electrics or a message from Satan. I am. I graduated top of my class on the two-day intensive course at the Lancashire School of the Macabre. For just a sniff at £24.97, I will enter your house and check for any unwarranted paranormal. For specialist services, an overnight stay may be required, in which case you must provide adequate catering such as toad in hall, peas and blancmange to finish. Unfortunately, I'm unable to give a specific price for this as Dancing with the Devil is not only dangerous, but difficult to quote. That's David Heathbrow, Ghost Finder, as misquoted on BBC BAFTA winning documentary, Debunking Heathbrow. Court case pending. That's David Heathbrow. Find me on CFAX, not the Yellow Pages. So, The Fly. I love this film. It's a sleeper hit for me. It's really? a film that I remember watching thinking it's a great, great film. And then for whatever reason, didn't return to it until recently. And I can't believe I haven't until this point because yeah. it's, it's brilliant. Was it like a, a welcome surprise sort of thing? And you came back to it, it's like, oh, I love this. It wasn't a welcome surprise. It was more of a... Okay, why am I not? Why have I not? Why have I only seen this once? Mm, mm. You know, it's it. Every everything I like about movies is in here, and yeah. yet I've seen it once. It's yeah. kind of that's what I mean by like sleep. It. It's kind of just sits there, and you kind of go. I always go, oh yeah, great film. But until you watch it again, you realise just how great a film it, it is. is. It is so well made. Now I love this film so much to the point of. I probably shouldn't examine my love for this film too much. It's probably bordering on obsession. Um, there's, there's a reason I have a fly tattooed on my leg, you know. <laughs> it says more about you than it does about the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More about me than it does about David Cronenberg, you know. <laughs> um, it's always been about this film. Was it 1986? I was a very small child. I was far too young um, for it when it came out. 
but it's always been around. It was a huge hit. I honestly couldn't tell you when I first saw it, but it's sort of, as when I think back, my memories of it are all of the, the all of the special effects, all of the disgusting stuff that happens in this movie is what first attracted me to it. Um, now as an adult. Um, I still love it. I still love those elements of film. It's, this film is revolting when it gets going. Um, but the sort of, the, the psychological aspects of it, um, the, the subplot, it's not really subplot, the subtext, sorry, of this movie, it's, it's, it keeps you fascinated. It, I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say I watch it regularly because I don't watch anything that regularly, but this is a film I always return to. It's always, if I had to make a top 10, I'm not really into doing lists like top 10 anything because my mood changes so much. But that sort of desert island disc thing, this movie's, if it's not in there, it's it came close. You know, it's that sort of top 10 movie for me. I love it. Like you say, everything I love about movies can be found in this movie. For me, it's one of those films where, you know how like when you think of a genre, you tend to think of a film or a couple of films. Yeah. I think of sci-fi and I think of The Fly. That's interesting, it's, yeah. It's, or not necessarily think of the film, I think of that, the... I can't the teleportator, te telepods. I, I think of that and the kind of, I think the DVD cover is, there's a blue version where it's bl smoky blue and then there's a green version yeah, where right. it's smoky green. Yeah. And I think of that, yeah. you know, very similar to Aliens and it's, or Aliens, sorry, mm. or Alien and Aliens, Aliens yeah. green, Aliens is blue, very similar in style. Mm. Uh, so would you, you class this movie as sci-fi? Because I, I was watching it yesterday Never really thought too much about it. It's a horror. It's a horror movie, but it's a sci-fi movie. But it's also a drama. It's all of these things rolled into one. So, what would? Where would you specifically place it as sci-fi? Because I think I put it as horror movie first, sci-fi second. Is how I. But not that it really matters. To be fair, but it's just interesting when you called it a sci-fi movie because I I wrote and one of my notes was horror or sci-fi was one of my notes. I would firmly put it in the camp of sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, sci-fi horror. But mm. sci-fi for me, definitely first. Uh, you know, not going too, too literal with it, but it's science fiction. You know, it's things yeah. to do with science that we haven't, or we're talking about, haven't quite been able to do that kind of area of... Yeah. But I... But, Equally, it's it's horrifying. It's it's not. It's, uh, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, for me, it's a it's based on a old nineteen fifty eight um, horror movie called The Fly. Um, but for me, that the, the sci fi is secondary to the horror. Like the sci fi gets you to the horror, and I think it's it's. I mean, we're probably it's just semantics at this point. Really, we're splitting hairs. Um, it is both the sci-fi and the horror, but yeah, it is, like you say, it is horrific. Yeah, I think, and it's got layers to it, you know, it's it's not just your, you know, a lot of modern horrors kind of just have one goal, or science fiction films tend to just have kind of like one goal, uh, whereas this one, it kind of works on many different, you know, you mentioned how revolting it is, and obviously, visually, from a practical effects kind of standpoint, it's horrifying, it's revolting. Mm. But also what I think is revolting is some of the behaviour in there from, you know, before he turns physically into the fly, spoiler alert, uh, 
<laughs> it's his, you know, his his behaviour is you kind of go that. And that, to me, is perhaps what's, I think, the more I think about that, the more horrifying that is, mm. rather than, you know, the physical elements of it. Obviously, that's the thing that everybody's kind of drawn to, but I think, you know, the, you know, the mindset and the, the, you know, the thought process of somebody to get to that stage and then see them deteriorate into something completely different is mm. it's terrifying in its, its yeah, own right. It's interesting you say um, cause about his behaviour because, as I say, it's like sci-fi horror and a drama. Um, there's, there's literally only really three actors, main protagonists, if you like. Um, and the two men in it are both gross. They're both horrible people. Like, uh, Brundlefly himself, um, it's, it, he's doing questionable things to baboons repeatedly, from what I can gather, because it, it's mentioned earlier on and then you see what happens. Someone not start with a mouse. <laughs> Why a baboon, you know? Um, and then you watch his character arc. He goes from being a nice guy who's doing horrible things, whether it's accepted or not, um, or acceptable within what he's trying to achieve. Then, obviously, his we'll get to the plot, but, you know, he becomes quite aggressive, and then he becomes quite weak, and then he becomes quite aggressive again. And it goes in these sort of arcs up and down of one minute you're rooting for him, then you're rooting against him, then you're rooting for him. But then the other male character, uh, Stan, what's his name? Stannis, something like that. Stannis Baran. Stannis. Really He's also repugnant. Yeah. He's a repugnant character. At the beginning of the film, I was like, I can't wait for you to get eaten. Spot, he doesn't get eaten, but you know what I mean? That's what Parts I'm thinking. Parts of him do. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm thinking as, you know, as the, as, as his character plays out at, at the beginning of the film. At no point does he have a redeeming quality. Like, um, Gina Davis's character, arguably the only one who's not a monster, you know what I mean? Um, she just falls in love with a with the nutty professor, you know? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Stannis because there's a... For me, I think it, what I like about it is that he is... A, not quite, but he's essentially the most heroic character in there, shall we say, in the sense of he's the one who comes to save the day. It doesn't quite go to plan. Yeah, he would traditionally be the everyman yeah. hero character. And, yeah. and that's the thing that I like about this is that, he, as you say, he is, he is a repugnant man. <laughs> he is repugnant. And he's yeah. the one who ends up saving the day. And I think that's yeah. a really kind of, a really nuanced thing that not a lot of films do, whereby... It explores that that ability of human beings to be both good and bad at the same time. It's mm. you know, it's not just oh, he's the hero. He's going to be very much doing all good at all times. He's horrible, and you want to see him get into eaten, and you want to see him get his comeuppance. And to a certain extent, he does. But mm. the, then there's that shift where you kind of go again. You kind of oh, this is a bit difficult to watch. I, I don't want to watch this anymore. And mm. then he, he he then starts to, you know, p p do that heroic element. Yeah, I mean, it. I think it's his motivations for doing the right thing aren't pure. You know mm. what I mean? It, I mean, this film is as much, um, as much about 
the, the human condition or at least the, the, the way people behave it's as much a study of the human condition as it is a sci-fi horror movie. You know, it's an update on the Doctor and Jekyll, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde story, um, told in a in a new and interesting way. You know, um, and like you say, within that is that they they subvert the hero character by making him, as you say, repugnant. He's like, and his motivations for doing the right thing aren't pure. He's not trying to do anything. He wants to own and possess Gina Davis's character. Like he's quite unpleasant. There's, there's a there's a great line that kind of sums it up. Where it's I think it's when Gina Davis is first kind of explaining to him what's happened, mm. and he says, "So does that mean I get your body now?" Right. And it's yeah. like, yeah, body autonomy is huge yeah. throughout this movie. But yeah. that line in itself, it it's almost like a you have to kind of really process it and go. Mm. Did you just say what I thought you said at the time you've said it? Yeah. You know, this this is what's happening. That's kind of the most pressing thing. And your first thought is, do I get your body now? It's, yeah. you know, as you say, it's that horrible kind of... Yeah, he wants to own her and possess her just as much as Brundlefly does towards the end of the film, you know. But they have both have very different motivations. Brundlefly, spoilers, towards the end of the film, he's trying to use her to keep himself alive. And um, the Stanis Stanislav, what is his name? Sorry, you just Stanis Stanis uh, yeah. Stanis Baran. Stanis Baran. Yeah. His character also wants to use her to keep himself not necessarily alive, but I mean, at the basest um, premise, uh, at least entertained. He wants to own and possess her for his mm. own use, just as much as Brundle does. And there's there's even elements of Brundlefly before he becomes Brundlefly having that same kind of behaviour whereby he wants her because he needs somebody else to go through it as well. Mm. So he's just gone through it and he needs somebody else to go through it because then that that way they'll be perfect for each other. Yeah, he's already twitching at that point. Though, yeah. he? He's already got the, the hairy back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's when he's kind of exploring, you know, oh, I feel great. It must put me back together and, and yeah. you know, take out all of the negatives. Yes, yeah, so but he re refers to it as rather, and it's, it's kind of comes, I never noticed it before, but he keeps going on about his coffee machine at the beginning. And then he refers to going through the pod as like being, going through a filter coffee or something, having all the, the rubbish taken out and being pure and clean. Um, it's it's so well done. Um, the, I mean, the film just starts... It it literally, I I sort of I had that feeling like did I blink and miss something? It literally is just goes off so like in the very beginning. Ten minutes before you're seeing something teleport, yeah, which is it feels like a very modern thing mm. because it you know tension spans of of today's youth and things like that mm. feels like something which would happen up very you know, you're dropped into a situation immediately. Yeah, it just you know. opens with him talking to Gina Davis. Do you want to come back to my house? It's like, hang on, what? You know? Yeah. Apparently he doesn't realise she's a, a reporter. It's just his chat up line. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to come see me telepods? You know? <laughs> to be fair to him, it works. It, yeah, it did, didn't it? Yeah. I'm going to change the world. But yeah, I think this movie is, um, as much as it's obviously a sci-fi horror and a, and a drama, as we're saying, it, it's, it's the sort of subtext of disease is quite apparent. Apparently, I read somewhere that Cronenberg was always um, bemused by the fact that people thought it was an allegory for AIDS. He said it wasn't. It was just for all diseases. 
specifically sort of cancers. And they mention it later on in the film that, like, cancer gets mentioned a couple of times, I think, throughout the film. I think he thinks he's got cancer at one point, doesn't he? Some sort of mutated fly cancer, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, those kinds of things are kind of... But sounds weird, but both obvious and subtle. Yeah. At the same time, if if that makes sense. Yeah, because you can watch it at a very superficial level. Like all, all great films are like mm. that. You can watch it on a surface level and go, it's a film about a man who sort of turns into a fly. Because he doesn't actually turn into a fly. He turns into Brundlefly. Mm. Um, which is funny because, like I say, my obsession with this film is is borderline worrying sometimes. <laughs> I, but I, for years... Like will occasionally refer to myself as Brundle Jim. You know what I mean? Just in, in jest, folks, don't worry. But when every time someone said Seth Brundle, my wife would start laughing because she's <laughs> so used to me saying Brundle Jim or something. Yeah. Or I'll throw Brundle in front of stuff. But I'll, I'll call the dog Brundle Dog. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, just going off of what you're saying about, you know, being an algory for, for all diseases, I think... Mm -hmm. You know, I, I looked at it with the kind of the, the viso of obviously you've got the physical kind of disease, but you, mm. there's also touched upon it earlier with the, you know, the mental diseases as well, where we kind of look at it and you see him physically change, but that's, he also mentally changes from, from being, you know, a particularly well educated individual to then becoming someone who's purely, purely kind of emo emotional in a way where he's just he's just reacting there's no kind of thought process it's just a reaction mm. here's a situation i'm going to react to that yeah uh, he mentioned he talks about um insect politics at one point then he he's like there aren't any and he, he keeps talking to us. it's a really good scene and he's like you need to leave because otherwise i'm going to hurt you he's like we i i, I was a a man who dreamt, I was an insect who dreamt he was a man, now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And she's like, I don't know what you mean. He's like, you need to leave. And it's, you watch that happen. Like you say, you watch him go from a well-educated, uh, kind sort of, I mean, so it does terrible things to baboons, as I said. <laughs> He's supposed to be this, this nice guy. And then you watch him become much more base. And it's that sort of the insect influence within him like psychologically as well as physically because he can do these things you know his mind changes and then you watch like you say he degrades again and you watch the the, the mental toll that has on him as he thinks he's dying um and then it swings all the way back around again after that doesn't it and, and then i guess again back down at the very end you know? but and um, what's interesting is that it's not just the case of it's it's not just something that gets like progressively worse it's like it gets worse you see a snippet of the of him again then it gets worse then you see another snippet of him and it's like this back and forth of constant like is Seth Brundle still in there or are you just Brundlefly? Yeah. And it's, you never quite, obviously physically it's quite obvious, but you never quite know mentally mm. what you're talking to, whether you're talking to Seth Brundle or Brundlefly. Yeah. And that's kind of the, I think that's the beauty of it. I think for me, that's what keep that's what keeps people coming back, you know, beyond, because obviously there's lots of films and there's lots of things where it does that kind of very uh, gory, uh, visceral kind of imagery. But without any kind of substance to it, ironically, mm. it's it's very difficult to kind of return back to view. And other than oh, have you seen this? It's gruesome, mm. you know. Uh, yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, like as we say, like the special effects are very gruesome, and you kind of forget. You get so into the movie, and it it goes by so quickly as well. It's like I say, it just starts. 
and you and you become very invested in the characters really quickly. Like it's really well done that way. So when you do get to the the start, it's, it builds up slowly to how gross it's going to get. And just as you think the the, the makeup has has gone where it's going, it keeps going and it keeps going. Um, and it's a testament to the film that you that by the time you get to that bit, it is an extra to the movie rather than the reason you're watching the movie. Now, it is a, it is a very important and strong part of the movie, but it's, like I say, it's not the only reason. You're not waiting to get to that point so you can enjoy the movie, you know. And it's it's a good way down the down the road before it really starts kicking in with the special effects. And they're great. Those practice. I mean, we've spoken about this before. I love practical effects. I will always... I will take... A rubber a man in a rubber suit over CGI any day of the week, and I don't care how dated it looks. I don't think the special effects in this film look that dated. This film's thirty seven years, years old. old. Thirty seven years, and that's old. the thing it doesn't it doesn't look dated at all. We're still watching it. My mm. wife sat there watching it, and she watched me more than she watched the TV because she's she's there and she's going. Pulling faces and she's she's mm. grimacing, and that's a sign of something that's that's still as good as it was then. You know, it's not. You know, the CGI practical effects debate is kind of we firmly fall on one side, mm. but we're still grimacing at it. We're still going, oh, that's grim. Yeah, it's, you know, it's still revolting. Like it, it. it it carries on. It 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 pushes through and keeps pushing you into uncomfortable places. Just when you think, I mean, it is rubbery. It is clearly, you know, rubber. This you know, but when you're watching it, it still has a visceral effect on you, um, as well as going. I wonder how they did that. I you know because I find myself doing that quite a lot. You know, there's the scene when he's walking across the all the way around and I'm like well they've spun the room they're spinning the room it's the only way you can do it but they cut it cuts as well and I don't know why they cut it I, I can only assume it didn't quite look right as the room spins that's why the cuts because it is built to spin so he can just do it in one take but it must have been something slightly off because it's still a very effective scene but I noticed the cuts and I'm like well Normally you put cuts in because you're, you're changing something, but I know for a fact, because I Googled it afterwards, um, you can actually see it. I think there's actual footage of it on the extras on the DVD. Um, he sh they show you the room. It's literally a giant, looks like a tombola, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I found the cuts. I noticed them, so I wonder if it didn't quite pan up. But that's also a testament to the film, because they... they they spent the money making the room spin and then obviously when it doesn't look quite right, we'll cut it and make it look right. So therefore it still holds up when you're watching it 37 years later. I still had to take a second to go, how did they do that? Oh, there's only one way they could have done that. Well, I don't want to spend all, the, all episode handbagging CGI. You do not get the same feeling. You know how they did it. It was done in a computer. Who cares? That's like, it's just like... Because, I mean, they're probably going to remake this film, right? And they are going to make it with CGI. And it's not going to work. It, it's, I, you don't, you know, less is more. All of those things we talk about quite a lot um, when we come to CGI versus practical effects. When you're limited by what you can do, 
it forces good directors to make great choices. When, when, when it's limitless, it loses something. Plus, the knowledge you know, none of it, what you're looking at just isn't real. It didn't physically exist. So there's the moment towards the end when, when he literally turns into the, the final version of Brundlefly and he's, he's, she pulls his jaw off and then his head splits open. It's, I mean, it's rubber, it's goo, it's, it's so gross though. I would not have had the same feeling if that had been done on a computer. I just, I can't see it, you know? Yeah, and just going back to the, the tombolus spinning room, mm. I think the difference between good practical effects and bad practical effects, because there are bad practical effects. We you know we're singing its praises a lot, but it can be really hokey in places as well. Not mm -hmm. not this film, so, but I was going to say really? practical <laughs> effects can be hokey. If oh we, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't do them right, yeah. and I think part of the part of the beauty of when it's good is is you, in your head as you as you did watching it, you go how how did I, how did they do this? And you yeah. can't quite work it out. I think the bad, the worst ones is going, well, that's obviously they've just done that. Mm. You know, that it's it's obvious how they've done it because they've not hidden it very well. Mm. Uh, yeah, and going back to when he, when, you know, the final transformation into the fly as opposed to Brundle fly, mm. it, it's a testament again to, to, to the practical effects that by that stage, we're still shocked by the final transformation. Yeah. We're still going, oh, that's another step up again. That's another level of, of gruesomeness because there's so much in here that it would have been really easy for that final thing to go, oh, is that it? Yeah, that looks a bit oh, like that's rubbery. Not, that's not <laughs> as grim as when he's like, when he's when he's pulling his nails out. That's grim, you know. Well, that was funny enough, I was just thinking about that as you were talking. It's like how they build you up to that moment. It gets, he starts off, he's, he's got those hair, bits of hairs coming out of his back. And then, slightly spotty. Yeah, yeah. Then his yeah. skin gets which, bad. Which, to be fair, nobody notices. They yeah, notice the she hairs doesn't say anything to yeah, him about she, it for ages, does she? she? Until she, the end, she's like, you look bad and you smell bad. She's <laughs> on top of him, looking at him, and <laughs> she got, notices the hairs first on his back. <laughs> uh, so you can see why she wasn't a scientist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not yeah, it, it's that it's building and building and building, and it would be would have been so easy to not achieve that that final iteration and that final feeling yeah. like, oh my God, that is, that is, that lives up to it. Yeah. I think um, maybe now would be a good time to talk about the plot as we seem to be tearing <laughs> through the movie before. <laughs> yeah. uh, if, it's, if it's not immediately obvious, here is the plot. So, an eccentric scientist changes the world with his teleportation technology. When his experiment seems to be going well, Dr. Seth Brundle tests his machine on himself and he gets fused with the worst kind of pest on planet Earth, the fly. What is the price of a man playing God? Only Seth knows. Only <laughs> Seth knows. <laughs> Somehow it doesn't sound right. <laughs> Seth, no Seth knows. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. So there you have it. He, he builds teleportation pods, which is pretty good at transporting inanimate objects he hasn't quite worked out how to do living creatures yet because it can't work out the flesh the flesh the flesh is a theme in this movie isn't it and uh he meets gina davies at a science fair i guess at some sort of conference and says 
I'm working on something. You should come and have a look at it. Basically, he's he's trying to have sex with her. Um, yeah, it's his chat up line, yeah. isn't it? I thought he knew she was a reporter. You know, you forget yeah. things in a film. And then he realizes, yeah, you're right, it's his chat up line. Yeah. And he realizes she's a reporter. He's like, no, no. Which ironically, yeah. in today's world, if you went up to a girl in any kind of uh, environment and said, do you want to come home? And, do you want to come back to my place and see my telepation pods? <laughs> Uh, teleportation, sorry, not telepation. Don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, they'd run a mile. It's yeah. not, you know, but I think that's part of the part of the charm of him is that he is a bit wet behind the ears socially. Yeah. He's yeah. not. He, he does say, I've been alone for a very long time. I don't, she, she says, you're not an accomplished drunk or something. He's like, I'm not even drunk. I just, I get sick riding a tricycle and all these sort yeah, of yeah. cute moments at the beginning. Uh, you know. Moments that make him human, which yeah. is really, really important. Mm. Because if, for example, let's flip it on its head. Let's say Stannis, this is now, I keep looking, it's, I want to say Stannis Baratheon. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the problem. I Yeah, exactly the same. It's Stathis, not Stannis. Stathis. So Stathis, Stathis. Which is a really odd choice of name. Uh, I mean, it seems to happen every episode. There's at least one yeah. name where me and you spend about 10 minutes saying it incorrectly. So, slowly but surely, we will offend everybody. Uh, not intentional. Uh, yeah, so Stathis' character. If he was, if it was his character with all of his traits... Yeah. It would have, it, you know, we wouldn't care quite as much because we already hate him. But because mm. of those human human moments where you go, you know, he's, he, you know, he, he's a little bit naive, you know, socially mm. and sexually. He's not exactly, you know, the sharpest tool in the box. Apart from when it comes to his, well, even even in his chosen field, he kind of says, you know. You know, all I do is I put the parts together. Everybody else goes off and makes the parts. I just put them together. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's that kind of, there's a very real human there, which makes it all the more kind of horrific when that human element of him gets taken away and mm. slowly gets taken over by the fly or this amalgamation of fly and man. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, then... He shows her the teleportation device working, and I think he uses her like undergarments. I don't know what you call her tights or stockings. That's it. Um, And then explains to her that he can't get um, it to work. I think then she leaves. So she they go out for. He convinces her to go out for cheeseburger, and um, he says, "Uh, it doesn't work when I put animals through it." And she's eating the burger, and she's like, "What happens?" He's like, "You don't want to know." So when you later find out what happens. It feels even more grim. Also, the fact that he uses uses baboons instead of like smaller rodents—it's never explained why. My, why baboons? I know they're more man-like, I guess. You know, my interpretation of that is mm. is probably because monkeys, primates, are obviously closer to humans than anything else, mm. and so with that, you know, the end goal is humans to be able to be transported. It's not quite explicitly said, but mm. essentially that's the way it kind of goes. Yeah. So that's how I've, but again, it's never explained. It may have been in the deleted scene or something like that, but that's how I kind of, but it's interesting because watching it, I've kind of or, already come up with a, a justification for mm. this horrible thing that he ends up doing. Mm. Oh, it's because they're close to humans when actually, as you said, why not start with a rodent or a mouse? Yeah, why, not, or... why not work out how to do it something small? Yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I think it is explicitly said 
a few times that it's he wants to transport everything, humans, everything. We'll get rid of cars, we'll get rid of everything. And that's when he convinces her to write the book on him. He says it will end with me going through, doesn't it? Um and uh, he turns you know, he he turns the baboon inside out, which is also some more great practical effects when that happens. And you know something, because he's already alluded to it, so you know something bad's happening. And then he works it out, however he works. It doesn't really explain how he works out. He just teaches the computer to love meat or something. Like, I don't really know. Um, and then it's interesting, like you're saying, like he has elements of his character that are unpleasant. So she leaves at that point, and he gets drunk. And he's bemoaned, because he's smart. He's worked out that she, enough, he's worked out enough that she's gone to go see her ex-boyfriend, who is clearly the publisher. Uh, and then he gets really jealous and upset about it and decides to go through the machine himself and gets trapped in there with a... Traps a fly in there. And the, 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 the computer, instead of just... Because there was only supposed to be one genetic material in there, literally splices him together on a genetic level with it. And then the, that's when the film really starts taking off. But um, there's like... We, we talk about Stathis... Like, she comes home and finds him in her shower. Like, it's some real predatory behavior. Like, he follows her around. All of this stuff is is really unpleasant. Uh, but it's it's almost... It's like a mirror to Brundlefly um, in so much as, like, the human... The unpleasant human characteristics that he's displaying become the unpleasant insect characteristics of Brundlefly albeit turned up to 10 with some really disgusting moments, you know. It's it's interesting the way that interplay works out. Like you say, the way they subverted who would naturally be the hero. Like, he is the most 80s, 80s publisher that you could have in a movie in the mid-80s. Like, he might as well have been banging lines of cocaine and, like, you know, yeah. drinking champagne constantly. Yeah, know? that's right. I mean, he's one drug binge away from Michael Wall Street. It's... Yeah, yeah. It's, he's, he's like that the bloke in um Gordon Gecko, sorry. Why don't I call him Michael, Michael Wall Street? I, I prefer Michael Wall Street. <laughs> I think Michael Wall Street is actually a wrestler who oh, really? based himself off of Gordon Gecko. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh the the character Stannis uh, What's the actor's name? The actor's name is John Getz. Right, so John Getz character. <laughs> Seamless transition. <laughs> Edit round that. Um, John Getz character. He reminds me of um, you know the first Die Hard movie. The geezer's like Hans, baby. Yes, you know, it's yeah, that yeah, yeah. kind of eighties character, like the um, the dude from Ghostbusters, the the government official from Ghostbusters, who's the the bloke in the, in Die Hard, uh, who's on the plane. Like that. It's like a stereotypical. And I'll, uh, to give credit Burgess due, it's dialed back. It's not over the top. It's not that hammy, big performance. It's just a way more realistic portrayal of an unpleasant person, yuppie type in the 80s. But it's it's still very, the character is still very much of that 80s period, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what makes it a bit more terrifying is that, you know, you can almost, when it's, over the top and it's it's larger than life it's almost not real but mm. when it's very as you say dialed back and it's you know everything's kind of spoken at this level nothing's really shouted I mean there's the scene where there's a creepiness about yeah, it there's yeah. the scene where he's in the shop and he kind of gets on his knees and it goes that way mm. but that's he, he knows what he's doing at that point he's kind of making a scene whereas the most of it's kind of 
it's very intimate in the way he speaks naturally he you know he's always one step away from trying to try something on with her yeah well that's it even when she comes home and finds him in her shower and she's like give me back my key and he's like no i'm gonna keep hold of it it's like what like i cannot wait for you to get your comeuppance and then like you say he turns into if not the hero he saves the day you know towards the end um it's fascinating fascinating sort of interplay of characters like say this this film has three principal characters in it throughout. It's, it's as much a play as it is a movie, you know. And when there's only three principal characters, it, the film is so reliant on the performances of those actors. And there isn't a bad performance in this film. Like no. Gina Davis and um, Jeff Goldman were dating at the time, and he got her the job. Is that right? Yeah. So they cast um, Jeff Goldman, Brundlefly. Um, and he said, do you know who'd be good in this? My girlfriend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, that's, yeah. Apparently, that's what they said. No. And they said, I think they, I don't know how it worked, but they convinced them to read. And she was perfect for it. And Cronenberg was hesitant because he was like, I don't really want to deal with a couple on set. You know, it's, that's a dynamic I'm not sure I want to get into. And they auditioned other actresses because I think what, what I read, they were saying, um, like the production company was saying, well, yeah, she's great, but the script's great. It's the script that's great. We can do it with another actress. So they auditioned some other yeah, actresses yeah. and they went, it's got to be her. And they were right. I can't imagine anyone. We'll yeah, get I mean, to all kind, this in a bit, but you that, know. That kind of explains in some way probably why the chemistry between them is so kind of on point and, mm. you know, tip top. Uh, and... Again, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Gina Davis's work, to be fair. But, there, you know, there, it isn't like... Yeah, it just works. And mm. it, again, I always find when, it, when you find it difficult to explain why something works, why something fits, that's usually a sign of it being something... That you something you can't quite put your finger on, and something you it's can't that thing hold that's in ineffable. Your hand, yeah, you know, which when you've got that, it's like lightning in a bottle. You've kind of got to just kind of run with it, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of that obviously kind of transcended to the box office. Yeah, you know, it had a f fairly large budget for a sci-fi horror film, fifteen million dollars. Uh, it's opening weekend. It made back just under half of, with seven million dollars. Gross US and Canada, $40 million. So that's almost three times its budget back just in the US and Canada alone. And then worldwide, $60 million, which equates to about £135 million in today's coinage. Nice. Yeah. So successful. Yeah, Cronenberg's uh, most successful movie, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you are dead on the money there. Yeah, it, very, uh, it had also this same... Same uh, success as A History of Violence in 2005, which made around about 61 million. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there's pennies in it. Uh, but either way, yeah, he, one of his, or well, no, his, his most successful film. Uh, so as we mentioned, it was released in August 15th, 1986, uh, directed by David Cronenberg, uh, written by Charles Edward Pogue, on the screenplay and David Cronenberg on the screenplay, but it uses uh, George Langlan, I think how you say that, <laughs> uh, his his short story as the kind of basis, 
much like the 19... Is it 58 film? 1958, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 1958 film, which used the same story as well. It was produced by Stuart Cornfed, Feld, sorry, and an uncredited producer was Mel Brooks. Yeah, he apparently came up with the be afraid, be very afraid line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was in discussion. Uh, he was asked the question, how should people feel about when they see the fly? And he said, they should be afraid. They should be very afraid. Mm. That's how it came up with that. And uh, the cinematographer was Mark Irwin, who we have discussed previously when he worked on screen. That's right, Mark Irwin. Um, the cinematography in this film is amazing. There's some, it's, it's, the saturation is just perfect. There's Especially towards the end, that the last act of the Brundlefly, um, it's so visually pleasing to stare at. Like the not just the direct not just the angles and the direction, but the actual the saturation, the cinematography. It's it's so nice to look at. It, it everything looks like a poster. Like it comes up a lot. Like I, I use it as a analogy a lot with films when they're, when they're really well made, where you could take almost any shot, stick that on a poster on your wall, and it's going to look good. You know, you've got some great direction and some great cinematography at that point. And this movie is full of them. Like you say, he did. Um, did Scream, Scary Movie, Robocop 2, Robocop 2 Dead Zone, Video Drace. Did a lot of Cronenberg's movies, actually. Um, yeah, well, American Pie 2, but the less said about that, the better. <laughs> Some Wes Craven stuff. But yeah, great cinematographer. And this the, this movie is visually... Like we spent, we've sp spoken a lot about the special effects. I'm sure we'll speak some more about, about that in a second. But visually, this movie is... It's like candy to me. I, do you know what I mean? It's like... When I watch it, I think this is how movies are supposed to look. Like, when it's done so well, you know. Yeah, it kind of harks back to those days where they were moving pictures. Mm. You know, that that's, you know, if you break this down into still frames and how many of them, as you say, can be movie posters or even just be p pictures that you see what, that sell the movie, that advertise the movie. Mm. You know, oh, this is a quick shot of... It's got hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. Uh, which isn't, I think is, we, we take for granted an awful lot, but it's incredibly difficult to to, to achieve. And mm. I, I had no idea how, how you would go about achieving that. It's one of those things where it's almost, yeah. it's almost, it's almost yeah. you know, magic. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're the, the great unsung heroes of Hollywood cinematographers. People in the business obviously know how much a good cinematographer is worth. But the average man on the street just, it's, they're no directors, they know actors, which is fair enough. But it's a shame. Like a, a good cinematographer is the difference between a good angle and a good shot. That's know? right. I think that's why I always like to include them in, in the list of that because, yeah. as you say, they're kind of unsung and... And editors, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As you said, I think you said it before. Good editing can make a film, and bad editing can break a film. It's mm. that that kind of simple. Uh, and then moving on to, we've obviously gone through the main cast. We've obviously got Jeff Goldblum playing Seth Brundle slash Brundlefly. We've got Gina Davis playing Veronica Quaife. I think that's how you say it. John Getz playing Stathis Barans. Uh, and then a couple of other small roles. We've got Joe, oh, sorry, Joy Bouchel playing Tawny, uh, Leslie Carlson playing Dr. Cheevers, 
and George Chuvalo playing Marky, which is the dude who gets his his arm, sorry, his wrist broken in an in most horrific fashion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a scene I'd totally forgotten about, yeah. but it's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's that great. you know, I love those scenes where you see the big kind of the bully character go, "I've got this," yeah, and everybody yeah. knows exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Again, one thing it does well in this scene is it takes it a step further. You know, he's going to win. But you don't quite expect him you to see his, where it's going, you know, yeah. his bone protrude from his wrist. Yeah, it's proper gross. It's absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he, careful, he eats candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of that yeah. mocking is almost. We almost don't care that that happens to him. Yeah, you're kind. You're kind of glad. Yeah. yeah, and I think one thing as well that was. Uh, we speak about it, you know, an awful lot sometimes, but casting is obviously very, very important. Mm. And I think, at, you know, I think I said it when we done the Jurassic Park episode that Jeff Goldblum, I think that's kind of what I was saying about how the fly is almost a sleeper hit and that I almost forget about it. Yeah. And I and I don't know why. And when I read, it's almost like I'm rediscovering it for the first time, which is, which is amazing. But yeah. at the same time, I'm like, how do I forget the fly? Yeah. Uh, at this point, he he'd been in th- he'd been in stuff, but this was kind of his breakout. This was the film that made yeah. him Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's interesting. Like, yeah, this was definitely his breakout here, um, and he's perfectly cast. He does really good fly impression, like the little sort of twitches and the, all of that stuff that he's doing. And he's he's doing some weird sort of rolling thing with his voice, like growling almost at the back of his throat when he's talking. But I don't know if he was doing. Jeff Goldman, Jeff Goldman before this movie, but you see the what you think of as Jeff Goldman performance apparently the thing he does with his hands when he's talking he's doing in this movie such sort of jerky thing that he does and he, you see it like once in this movie and you go oh it's the Jeff Goldman hands there it is yeah, yeah 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 I think I can't remember who it was but somebody summed up Jeff Goldman performances and he said it's like he discovers something that contradicts what he's saying midway through saying it. So he's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. saying, you know, I, I, I love hamburgers. Hamburgers are great. Hamburgers are brilliant, but I, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> That's a pretty uh, good joke over uh, right now, aren't and, yeah. and it, Unfortunately, it's become a little bit of a cliche. Yeah, where he, these he, things he, do, yeah. You know, yeah. but the reason it started is because of how good he is in this, where he plays that, uh, that eccentric, obsessive... Mm. Uh, oddball oddball yeah mm. the way he kind of just like he talks really really fast and he's saying lots of things and you're not really listening to what he's saying he's just kind of saying oh, the, it the scene in the calf just after he's obviously he's putting all the sugar yeah, in his yeah, coffee yeah. and he's obviously getting a bit fly-esque but it's it's just at the beginning but the speed at which he's talking in that scene is impressive yeah you know? yeah yeah so anybody who's ever done anything where they've got to read lines or read a script do it mm. and then I think there's elements of it where he's probably improvised some of that. Yeah, from uh, what I read, it was half written the day before, and he said, I don't know if he said leave it to me, but he was really keen to take like a big mm. chunk of that. I can do something with this scene. And if I don't know how much of that was him, but what was done with that scene is amazing. It is a really good scene. Wait, oh, and you see his aggression coming through. He's trying to get the waiter. Yeah. Wait, oh, I want a bear claw or whatever it is he decides. Yeah, and he's he, he bangs like, the table a couple yeah. of times. Yeah, he's, you know? he's, uh, he's which like, ironically is what he ends up doing in Jurassic Park a couple of times. It's, it's very 
it's almost beat for beat. Is that right? Gone into like Jeff Goldblum where it's like he's saying something and then he says it and then just to hammer home his point, he kind of, he bangs on the table <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's, he does it and it's, you know, it's very much... Do, do you Jeff Goldblum again? Uh, well, uh, so so that's the thing. I could, I, I could become president, I could do it again, but then again, uh, uh, I don't like politics. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, man. Uh, yeah, he's very... He just he, he, it's almost like the part was written for him and it's difficult to separate the Pretty man Jeff Goldblum it, yeah. from the character mm. Seth Brundle and I think yeah, I feel like he's been doing it ever since yeah you know, I don't and, know if he was doing it before but I feel like he's been doing it ever since like he 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 clearly has a niche <laughs> you know and I don't know if it started with this movie but yeah it's it's him and you see him, but you also see the character. You yeah. Know? His niche isn't quite Nicolas Cage niche. It's kind of in between, yeah. like, normal and Nicolas Cage niche. Yes, yeah. he's, he's the in-between. He's your, he's your gateway to Nicolas Cage. Yeah, as I say, it's, 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 it's a perfect, perfect kind of role for him. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think he's probably been in anything since where he's been quite as good here it's interesting when you... it's the first time we kind of seen that and everything has mm. tried to do similar things uh, yeah, we, we know what we can do with Jeff yeah. Goldblum after this point yeah. absolutely it's interesting when you look at the, the films he's done since it's not a great deal of, of like iconic performances other than The Fly and Jurassic Park really you know he's in a film called The Tall Guy after this which I think is a British comedy which I recall being pretty good some reason I think it's got Ron Atkinson in it, but I'm probably wrong. You know what I mean? Interestingly enough, I could imagine Ron Atkinson playing Brundlefly. <laughs> he yeah, dresses it, like Mr. Bean in this film. There, there is those kind of links to it, yeah. and there's a there is. I think the 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 tagline to the Bean movie is "Be afraid, be very afraid." Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of plays on plays on that. How how much they're aware of that, I don't know, but. Mm. It's interesting oh, making interesting. those kind of connections. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting that like, it was Mel Brooks that came out there. Like you say, he was uncredited as a producer on this movie because um, he was worried that people wouldn't take the movie seriously. But he did, around the same time as he did The Elephant Man as well, Mel, where he produced The Elephant Man yeah, with John yeah. Hurt. So I don't know how many more um, horror movies he produced, but like, that's kind of interesting. The fact that he came up with that, that's like an iconic line. I didn't realise it had been used on the... Mr. Bean film as well. <laughs> they it's obviously play it, playing it for laughs. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, um, because it's such an iconic line. Like, I forgot it was from this movie until I picked up the DVD and it was written on the front of it. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then she yeah. says it. When she comes back and he's with... The, uh, uh, apologies, I thought she was a... Pro I remembered her as a prostitute. She's not a prostitute. He even say, what, well, do you think I'm a prostitute? Because he offers her, the woman in the bar, 50... Yeah. It 100 bucks, I think he offers her. 100 bucks and I get to take... Take yeah, and she's like, what do you think I am, you know? But, um, yeah, Gina Davis uses the line then, doesn't she? She's like, yeah, you yeah. should be afraid, you should be very afraid, because she's had his hairs um, examined, and they think they're insects, you know what I mean? Um, but like, it, that, that, then, that scene then plays out into, like, a re that, like his realisation of what's going on in that scene. is He starts going on the computer, and, and you get to that whole, the whole bit where it's like, uh, I can't remember how it is. It's like first, first uh, subject, second subject, or something like that. It says, and, it, and you watch him. Well, what is the second subject? And it, it gets closer and closer, zooms in, zooms in, and it's a fly. 
And then uh, he's like, well, what did you do with the fly? And the computer's like, stuck it together. And he's like, did Brundle assimilate the fly? And he's like, no, no, it's on a genetic level. <laughs> it's the realisation. I think his, his finger's fallen off at that point. They have, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he, he's wearing the gloves yeah. as he's using the computer. That bit's so gross. Yeah. And he's like, he's biting his fingernail, isn't he? His fingernail his pops off. come off and then And then he squishes squee- it. Because yeah. like, oh, you see a bit of pus coming out of his hands in the arm wrestle thing, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, oh, it's so gross. What's he called? Uh, the medicine cabinets, the Brundle, the Brundle uh, Fly uh, Natural History Museum, or something that's like a that. Fantastic one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's another. I th- I, one thing that's in there. Then. His teeth come out at that point, and then you see. Yeah. There's something that looks very phallic in that cupboard. <laughs> I was watching that. I was right. going, he's definitely got his knob in there, isn't he? Right. Like, like, I rewound it. Be. I rewound it. Yeah. And I was like, it's either a finger or not. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. yeah, mm, bits of him are falling off. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm. But th- that scene where he's, he's, he's finding out what the computer's done, again, it, it when we talk about layers, that go, kind of goes into another question you know, a science fiction question that's quite, you know, age old is where, do, you know, where does technology kind of assist man and where does it not need man? And mm. it's kind of like the technology's made the decision for for him mm. to splice it together as opposed to assimilate or whatever, you know, they're abundant yeah, of different... Or warn him. Yeah, <laughs> There's say, no warning mechanism on for, that. You yeah. know, there to be, as you yeah. say, some sort of warning. And that, you know, that's another question in there as well. So it's not just a case of, you know, there's the obvious, but then the more you kind of look into it, the more there are those kind of other questions that are kind of raised. You know, classic sci- sci-fi kind of questions. I mean, it is a... It's, I mean, it's worth taking a second. Just the concept itself is amazing when you think about it man events teleport teleportation device a fly gets in there hit i mean in the original his head swaps over you seen the original so, I haven't it's no. a very different movie i love it but he literally he spends the entire film in his lab his wife's upstairs and he's like got a bag over his head throughout the a sack on his head and he's got a fly hand he's got a big fly hand and a big fly head and I think he spends most of the film with it on so she can't see and it you know, escalates towards the end of the film. He's got a big fly head and he dies, spoilers. And then they're trying to find... I think he spends the entire film trying to find the fly with his head so he can put his head back on his body. And then... Uh, yeah, I know, it's, it's amazing, trust me. And then right at the end, they find the fly with his head on and it's in a spider's web. And his, his tiny little human head going, help me, help me, with a big rubber spider going, eating the fly. Help me, help me. And they throw a help me, help me in, in this movie. Now, I don't know whether it was on purpose in homage or whether it was just like, because it actually would have been, you know, it was suitable for the script. But I, lo- I love that. But that, sorry, I've gone, got a bit distracted. I do love that 1958 <laughs> movie. Help me. No, um, yeah, so that, that concept, it's, it's such a good idea. Like a fly gets in the transportation, a teleport. Teleport, I think he calls it a telepod in this film. And it fuses them together in a mu- in much more spectacular fashion in the eighty six version. But. It was it was quite funny watching this with my wife, who just didn't 
get any of that element. Like, <laughs> there's a point where he gets in and she says, why has he got to be naked when he goes in? And I was like, because he fused with his clothes. That's kind of the whole point of the film. And she's like... Oh, like, and I was just like, <laughs> if there's ever an audience that isn't for the fly, it's her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, you know, there's there's so many kind of elements of this that are what makes to me sci-fi interesting. You've got mm. the, uh, you know, it's the question of where did you know man playing God? That's an interesting question. Mm. You've got the you know the whole technology in it you know, when does it become sentient almost? That's an interesting question. You've also got that element of, you know, I said I said halfway through the film, I said, there's a sequel to this film. Mm. You know, there's, there's The Fly 2. I haven't seen it. And my wife went, well, how do you do this again? I was like, well, in my head, I've not seen it. I've not read anything about it. But the next kind of obvious transition is, they try and replicate it because that's what scientists do. They try and replicate it and get a different result. And there's there's an element of then that then it then you start asking the questions of you're doing something that you know has this disastrous effect, expecting something else to happen, mm. or expecting you to be different because of whatever reason. And not that I'm saying I, I don't know if that's that's just what happens in the next one. The uh, the second one, as best as I can, I have it on DVD. I don't watch it much. It's his baby. Is it's Gina Davies? I'm sure Gina Davies is in it again. I think and yeah. From, his kid. From I don't know how many years ahead it is, but like his son is now like late teens, early twenties, something like that. Maybe he's going through puberty. I think that might be the catch. He's going through puberty and he's starting to change. Um, and it's sort of like the company have taken them off to one side to like, ex not necessarily experiment, yeah. but keep an eye on him and all this sort of stuff going on. You know. So they're, they're, as I say, there's those those kind of questions and mm. conglomerates and companies and, you know, the, the, the dark stuff that, yeah. that companies end up doing that, end up getting us to a, a positive stage of, oh, we found a cure for this or we mm. found this life-changing yeah. thing. What, what have you had to do, <laughs> as you say, at yeah. what cost? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the thing, the, the question of body autonomy comes up through this a lot. So there's like, obviously, uh, her boss thinks he owns her in some way. Brundlefly tries to literally shove her into a pod so he can assimilate her body with their child. She wants, at one point she dreams about being forced to have an abortion. Then she wants an abortion. Then Brundlefly doesn't want her to have an abortion. Um, all of these questions are sort of, uh, so he wants her to go through the, the teleporter. She won't. Then he wants, the lady picks up in her thing in the bar, sorry, to go through. She won't. And even at the end when uh, he's confronting Stathis, um, he doesn't kill him. He's going to kill him. He doesn't. But he takes his hand and takes his foot. Like, thus, body autonomy comes up again. And then you have, underlying all of that, essentially what disease does to your body when it robs you of your body autonomy. It's like a consistent theme throughout, but it's done so well. So you, like you say, you have those levels that you have in, like like you, you were saying the other week, great movies ask questions. This asks 
a lot of questions. That that age old one that we always seem to keep coming back around to with like just because you can, should you, you know, that sort of stuff. Like when you get to the technology mm-hmm. um and the and the way human behavior is, all of these questions it asks all the way through, where is the line? How far would you go? All of those sort of things is fascinating. It's also that, you know, there's the question of, you know, how human nature in most cases is to cut corners. We want to get to the end result before we're ready to get to the end result. And the only reason this kind of happens is because he, I've just got to try it. There's kind of no thought process other than I've just got to try he's it. He's drunk as well, don't he? Yeah. He's drunk and in a mood because she's left. Again, that possessiveness is is back in play, that ownership of another human being, you know? Yeah, and, it, you know, before before he's ready as a, as a, as a scientist, before humanity's ready as a race mm. to go down these kind of routes, it's, you know, that, again, another interesting question in there. Uh, and... I think what's good about this is that we the answers aren't clear. Mm. You know, the answers aren't kind of like, oh, this is what happens when this happens. It's not that kind of straightforward. It's kind of, as you say, you know, going back to the Stathis character and the fact that he kind of becomes the, I wouldn't say the most heroic, but he's the one who kind of saves the day in, in some elements. Mm. We don't really get an answer to if he's good or bad mm. in this film. We, He's both, mm. and he's and he's neither at the same time. Yeah, as is Brundlefly. Yeah. By the end of the film, he's both good and bad. Yeah, uh, he has he has these has this situation thrust upon him through his own actions, his own uh, arrogance, and all of that sort of like you say that sort of human nature to want to push those boundaries beyond. Um, and this is the consequence. And you watch his journey, like you say, it's not it doesn't keep ramping up straight. He goes. He, he obviously goes through the the teleporter and he feels great. And he's, there's that that really good scene where he's doing all the um, gymnastics. It's clearly not Jeff Goldblum, some dude in a wig, but it's just brilliant. You know what I mean? He's a considerable amount shorter, yeah, than much him. much shorter. That's the thing. He's a tall, tall man. You know, it's mean? like six four. Yeah, yeah, and he's, yeah, he shrinks a bit and then becomes a great gymnast for a minute. Um, you know what I mean? And you get all those stuff in that, and it's that you get. As the viewer, you get that sort of, oh, I'd like that if I could be that that healthy and that full of beans or whatever. Then, But we all know what's coming as well. But that whole section of the film's fascinating as well. Right up until the point, and his nails start falling off. Oh, and then, like you say, it, it goes through into that. Anyone who's cut their nails a little bit too short knows exactly the kind of terrifying <laughs> nature of the whole nail because that's the thing I mean the, the, all of the all of the the, the I mean the, the special effects uh, the, he won an Oscar for it didn't he um, yes yeah yeah I've got it written down best, somewhere but I can't see best it best makeup I think is is the Oscar uh, yeah I can't see I wrote it down somewhere I do apologise but um, yeah they won an, an Oscar for it um, they studied diseases when they were moving all the makeup, that's that's really where they were leaning into. And he said, like, we built it up slowly, bit at a time, bit at a time, and it gets more and more gross. And it's it's it just it never fails to disappoint. I could see why they won an Oscar for it. It's it doesn't disappoint, you know. Yeah, grounding it in reality is always a, a, mm. a good even a bit when he's chewing on the pencil and his teeth fall out. And it's, you're just like 
you kind of can you know it's coming is he puts the pencil in his mouth and he's gnawing away on it his ear falls off at one point and, and apparently that reaction was gina davis's genuine reaction she didn't realize it was yeah happen. yeah that's yeah, right yeah and it's and it's good because it's, it's not overdone it's just like oh! <laughs> and he's like Oh, and a bit when he, like the, one of my favorites, there's so many scenes in this that are, are my favorite scene. It's really hard to put, pin down. Um, when he's eating the donut, he just throws up on the donut in front of me. He goes, Oh, sorry, that was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Which I think is the same scene when his ear, I think his ear falls off just after that bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant just, because it, it does just kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. And I knew, I, I remember. And I knew it was coming on. I looked over at my wife and <laughs> the look of disgust in her face while, while she was eating her dinner, which, and I was like, are you yeah. enjoying that? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's brilliant because you kind of, there's moments where you kind of forget what's happening and mm. then very quickly it throws you back into it and go, that you know, this is, you know, he's living with it, but you're kind of living with it. Mm with him as well yeah, it's interesting how he, um how he, the scientist in him comes out he finds his own decay fascinating oh here's my little museum of my bits and makes a little video it's like this is how brundlefly eats his food and you don't see it you just see stathis's face going oh, oh you know great stuff man. yeah i mean going back to the whole there being lots of levels to this there's a the point where the final transformation where he's the fly and the telepod yeah, fused, yeah, and he 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 pulls the gun up to his head, yeah, for yeah. Gina Davis that last bit to, of to pull humanity, the trigger, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's two, as you say. There's there's that element, but again, looking at it a bit deeper, because of the character, we kind of look at it, or I I I looked at it and went, well. Is he doing that because he's trying to protect Gina Davis? He's trying to, you know, protect humanity from what he's become? Or is there a purely selfish nature of where he just doesn't want to be living like that anymore? I think it's and the latter, yeah. yeah. But the, there's that question where, again, we're questioning the humani humanity of him, not because of what's happened to him, mm -hmm. but because of the human it's based on. Mm -hmm. because we're, Because there's those question marks where it's a bit, you know, on the surface, he seems like a nice guy, but there's definitely some questionable motivations behind mm. it. You're questioning kind of every kind of element of humanity of him. And so it's difficult to, not only is it difficult to differentiate between what's the flies element, yeah. what's the human element, but it's also difficult to differentiate between what's what human elements are, the positive human elements and what are the negative human elements? Yeah, hundred percent. It's that whole Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde thing, isn't it? Where he's fused with the fly, and they haven't quite got to the point in a film where that it's destroying him. He's got this. It's almost like superhuman strength and his stamina and he's all of these things. And it. it is it the insect that's making him behave in this aggressive manner? Or is it because he now can? You know, and that question is never really answered. How much of it is the insect? How much of it? They, they get to it where he starts, again, I was saying, talk about insect politics and as he gets worse and worse. But it, like we were saying, it seesaws 
back and forth between decay and strength constantly. How much of this is the insect? How much of this is Brundle himself? I think they lean heavily into it being the insect, especially by the end of the film. But like you say, those questions are never really answered. Because it is that, it's almost like, what would you do if you could break someone's arm in an arm wrestling match and, and take his woman and do all of those sort of, uh, what I would call, uh, to what they would now call toxic masculine aspects. But, you know, alpha male type. Yeah, alpha, yeah, yeah, if you could, if you can, like, I used to, um, set the... The uh, Hollow Man, is it? If you could, yeah, yeah. what would you do? Or something. Yeah. It's those questions that these sort of movies pose. And um, <laughs> for those of you at home, he's now writing Hollow Man down on a piece of paper. I think it'll be coming up soon. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, it, like you say, it's never you're never fully sure how much of it is Brundle and how much of it is the fly. Because he says, "I'm not turning into a fly." It's great. I'm turning into... I'm becoming so... I remember the line wrong every time because I, I squish two parts of the films together in... Two parts of the film... Two parts of the film together in my head. And it's like, I'm becoming something more than man. I'm becoming Brundlefly. It's how I remember it. It's not what he says, but that's how I remember it. I'm becoming more than man. Because he says something about... Um, it's like, uh, part man, but I'm now the offspring of Brundle... Of and Brundle... Seth Brundle and Housefly or something like that, I think is what he says. And then later on says, I am becoming Brundlefly. Which is just a great line, you know what I mean? And even elements of that, like referring to him as Brundlefly, is, there's an endearing quality to it mm. where there's that empathy where you kind of go... He's that giddy scientist. Yeah. Where he's, he's naturally fascinated by what's happening. I found out my disease has a purpose, I think he says at yeah, one point. Yeah, it? Yeah. it kind of reminds me a little bit of when in those kind of those science fiction-based films where they're doing a lot of testing on animals or on creatures and they give them pet names. Mm. It's that kind of thing of like, you're doing horrific things to them, but you're, you're giving them human-like qualities and you're personifying those things mm. because it makes it, you know, well, I don't know how it, but, that, you know, that those motivations are questionable. Mm. And as I say, it's like, he, he's he's endeared himself to, he is Brundlefly. Mm. It's, well, he, he's looking at himself objectively as a science experiment. Hey, kids, do you want to see how Brundle eats his food? Yeah. All, he's like, film me, watch this. Because the scene before that, he's on crutches. And he's like, she hasn't seen him for, I think it's four weeks. Yeah, yeah. And like, he's in a really bad state. And then the next time she sees him, he's crawling across the ceiling. saying, oh, my disease has a purpose, it would seem, and all this. And it's that... Where is this going? It's up and down. It's back and forth. We know where it's going. I've seen it so many times. It's, it's, there's a load of deleted scenes where he's like, I think he's climbing up a wall and a fly arm comes out of his side and all of this sort of stuff. Just, none of that was needed. I think there's like the perfect amount of turning into a fly. Because like I was saying before, like, his performance as a fly or a man with fly-like characters, I should say, is amazing. A little twitchy stuff. He's so well. Like we've already said, really, but it was the role Jeff Goldblum was born to inhabit. You know, I cannot imagine anybody else being able to service this film. You know. Prince Bait and Tackle Shop for all your fishing needs. Next time 
you're in Mother's Vineyard, check out Quint's Bait and Tackle Shop. We stock a wide range of fishing gear, including rods and reels and bait, and, and also dynamite. Next time you're in Martha's Vineyards, don't forget to check out Quint's Bait and Tackle Shop. Also, book in now for Quint's Offshore Fishing. That's Quint's Bait and Tackle Shop, south of the pier. Martha's Vineyard. Cocaine Tangerine Hot Sauce Company. Available in three varieties of heat. Mild, agitated and ruby red. Michael Caine's Tangerine Hot Sauce. It causes a painus in the anus of Michael Caine's. Well, now that you say you cannot imagine anybody else, let's try. It's always my favourite bit. <laughs> so I'm going to throw some names out at you. Yeah. So, again, how much of these were considered and how much were just names that were discussed, I don't know. It's always interesting to think about. So name number one, Michael Keaton. 1986, Michael Keaton. Three years before back. I mean, he he does do weird. He can do weird. He can. He can, he can. do weird. Like, yeah, I don't want to. I don't. I wouldn't. I don't really want to dismiss Michael Keaton as a as a comedy actor because he's not. I I I think I would find it funnier if he was playing Brad. I it in my. I can only imagine it with more of a lighter touch with Michael Keaton, and maybe that's doing him a disservice. I don't know. I think at that time, I think you'd have been spot on. Actually, mm. I think that would have been. He would, you know it probably why he wasn't in inevitably cast because maybe David Cronenberg couldn't see past that, mm. you know, that comedic nature of Michael Keaton because mm. I don't think he'd done anything. I don't think he'd done much of note at that point anyway, mm. but he's certainly more in there. In the, uh, Has he done that? Is it night? What's that film we did with the Fonz where they, they're pimps? Night Shift, I think it's called. It's got um, Diane from Cheers in it as well. Yeah, Shelley Long. Yeah. It's a great movie, as I recall. It's around that time. So, it's, you know, there, certainly yeah. on, it's a comedy, on, on, on the more comedic you know I mean? nature. Yeah. Another name? That's a no for me, I think. No. Yeah, I think, as you say, it takes it in a in a far more comedic nature, mm. which there are elements of this that are quite funny, but they're funny for the wrong reasons. Mm. They're not funny because that's a, that's a really funny thing. It's yeah. funny because that's terrifying or... Yeah, that's you either grim. laugh or cry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, John Lithgow. <laughs> Again, uh, I've seen him do serious roles. Uh, cupcake. <laughs> Fuck yourself, Cupcake. Uh, um, I mean, I like John Lithgow. He was in Dexter. He played a serial killer in Dexter. He's great he's quite in that. He, that he, one, he, can, yeah. he can do those serious elements, and I think. But it's very it's difficult sound a bit to weird. see past. Yeah, I think it would just look so 80s with a, with a younger John Lithgow in it. 
it it feels to me. <laughs> yeah. I would be watching it thinking it was a TV movie, and I don't mean that in any sort of real disrespect to John Lithgow. It would. It's just I can't see it. I can't. It's I can't. The thing is, I can't see anyone other than Brundlefly himself playing Brundlefly. You know. Um, I think we're going to get. There's going to be a lot of this. Yeah. Nah, to be fair, but well, you know. can you see Richard Dreyfus? <laughs> he comes up a lot, Richard, yeah, Richard Dreyfus, doesn't he? He's obviously eighty-six. Eighty-six, Richard Dreyfus. No, no, absolutely not. No. Another name which absolutely. <laughs> Mel Gibson. Really. <laughs> like, that can't be... I'm going to take that one with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Apparently he turned it down to do Lethal Weapon, which uh, Lethal was a smart choice from him. Uh, oh, he actually turned... So they offered it to him. Apparently he so. he turned it down. But I mean, it, he made the right choice I, for him, I for think, sure. I think it's Lethal one of those things great. of him just being a being a star and they wanted some... Potentially at that point when he was being discussed, they may have wanted somebody who could sell a film. He, he, I don't know if he was a star at that point. He was He'd more, been in Mad he said, Max. He was more bankable. He'd done... He'd done Mad, the Mad, Mad Max, Max movies. one and two. I think, I feel like he wasn't a Hollywood movie star not, at that point. Not, not, but he... He was up and coming, though, so he may he may have had a buzz the, about him. He was on him, the trajectory, it, you know I mean? yeah, so... Yeah. It's possible. Uh, um, no, hard pass. Hard yeah. pass. Yeah, I can't see that. In the slightest. This one I can see. William Defoe. I'm sorry, I honestly thought you could say Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm growing hairs out of my back. I'm turning into a man fly. <laughs> I'm becoming something more than man. I'm I don't need, I no longer need the chopper. I can <laughs> but, fly independently uh, from a vehicle. But it's a good thing you never actually see him fly in this movie. He doesn't actually sprout wings as far as I recall. You know what I mean? that would, um, yeah, that would have been, yeah, that been a bad. step too far. I'm sorry, who did you say? Uh, Willem Dafoe. <laughs> Do it. Come on. Put the shotgun to my face. Do it. I'm a fly man. Kill me now. <laughs> um, sorry, I can resist it. <laughs> I now want to see that film. <laughs> I think any You puny film... little man. I'm fly man. <laughs> You're not putting me in a jar. <laughs> Look what you've done to the baboon. <laughs> Look at your puny arms. <laughs> sorry, what? William Defoe. <laughs> William Defoe. <laughs> William Defoe, sorry, yeah. Um, hang on. I can't <laughs> still think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, <laughs> who, who at no point, as uh, far as I can tell, was considered. It's just something that pops into your head. <laughs> he wear his little gold like um, onesie from... Running Man or something. There would be a lot more noises in this. Of I've made a teleporter. Would you like to come and see it? It's <laughs> go, it goes from one place to the other. <laughs> There'd be a lot more noises. As him. he was transforming, yeah. he pulled his finger and... <laughs> what is happening? I've gone Jamaica. <laughs> Why am I Jamaica? It's gotten a bit racial. Racial. Um... <laughs> Right, Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe, yes, 100%, you're right, yeah, Willem Dafoe, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it's not really much else to say on that after we've covered, so, uh, again, another name that tends to come up a lot, James Woods. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, yeah, it's 80s actors, I suppose, isn't it? James Woods, yeah, I get a very, I don't get, he's, I, in my head, James Woods is just menacing. 
Do you know, he's got more of a, a menacing alpha male persona to start yeah, with, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, he tends to play those characters more often. Yeah. You know, I think po possibly slightly... the same could be said for William Defoe. William Defoe, to me, he's like a, a, a grizzled detective character in my mind. It might be a, a American psycho hang up. You know what I mean? See, to me, William Defoe, I always feel he's like one step away from just completely losing it. Whenever I've yeah. watched it, in pretty much anything, whether or not that's the character, I always feel he brings, and perhaps it's... Man on edge. Yeah, he brings yeah. that kind of element to it where at any point, anything can tip him over the edge and he just loses it. Yeah. And he goes full... Green Goblin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably yeah. because I think that's probably the first time I saw Willem Dafoe was in Spider-Man. So I always struggle to see him do anything other than... I, 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 can't I was think 10 when it came film. out. I'm so trying to think of Willem Dafoe films now. I can't think of anything. American Psycho. I can't think of anything. Passion of the Christ. He, was it? No, not... He played Jesus in something. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, like the greatest story ever told or something. Yeah. yeah. I can't think what it's called and there'd be people shouting at us now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could see him do it. Yeah. Um, uh, for the female lead, obviously played by Gina Davis, mm. uh, a name, interestingly, with Jurassic Park links, Laura Dern apparently was considered, but ended really? up appearing in David Lynch's Blue Velvet in the same year. Okay. So that's, you know, quite interesting. And there is... Funny, I think David Cronenberg and David Lynch, I don't know if it's just because of, like, David, you know. But I think of them as both being, like, they make weird films. And sometimes David I have to, Lynch I have to think which so. ones... Oh, David yeah, Lynch is yeah. proper weird. But if you had told me David Lynch had made The Fly, I'd have been like, yeah, I could see that. Even though it's not a very Lynchian film. Oh, it's not, yeah. like, super odd. But it has... I think it's just because of all of the the sort of concept of it, if someone, like I wouldn't have been surprised if they'd said, oh, they thought about Lynch for it. You know yeah. What I mean? Yeah, I mean, David Cronenberg for me has always kind of been, when I think of David Cronenberg, I think of kind of like body horror. Yeah. You know, Scanners. Scanners. Yeah. Uh, Dead Ringers. Did he do? He did Naked Lunch, I think. Yeah. X. Dens was one of his. Yeah, he's just released Crimes of the Future. Mm. He hasn't uh, done much lately. That's his first film for a while, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and yeah. that one looks very David Cronenberg. Oh, does it? That's cool. Yeah, it's kind of got all those kind of hallmarks that you want. It's yeah, like... Videodrome's one of his yeah. as well, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the one I was, couldn't, couldn't quite... I think that when you think of Cronenberg, it's, it's Videodrome Scanners, The Fly. They're the sort of top three you're going to be thinking yeah. of, I think, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Interestingly little bit of uh, useless trivia for you. This was the first theatrical film to have its broadcast premiere on the Fox Television Network. Is that right? So Fox, the Fox TV network was kind of new at that point. Yeah, so yeah. it's the first film that was on there. Back so, when those things were important, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. Know. Uh, TV premieres of movies kind of irrelevant these days, isn't it? I mean, they're it, you can stream movies now while they're on at cinema. Yeah, whereas obviously in those days it was 
if it was on TV, that's where you got a lot of your market. Mm. And then with the with the advent of home video releases, that's where I mean that's the thing, isn't it? Secondary market again. We always talk about the uh, the box office because you have to contain when you talk about how much a film makes. You have to contain what you're talking about because well, you're going to include posters. You're going to include. I mean, like where do you action figures again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got uh, uh, McFarlane toys figure of the fly um, in his full fly pose. You know what I mean? So that would have been a licensed product. That's also revenue, you know. But like, obviously, we talk about the box office, but I've I've got two copies of the fly on DVD and I'm looking at buying a third as we were talking about before we started <laughs> recording. I've got the fly on DVD. I've got the fly and fly two on DVD. And you can buy the complete saga from 1958, all of the sequels they did, like Fly Returns, Curse of the Fly, all of those, all the way up to the the the, the two more modern. Although, interestingly, when you think about it, I think there was, hang on, I think it's 26 years between 1958 and 1986. So there's more time between, between now. Exactly. That's... Uh-huh. I can't and work you out think that's about... fascinating or depressing. Yeah. Uh... Well, it's, it's, I find it fascinating. You think about the difference between a 1958 film, particularly The Fly in this case. Help me, help me. He's got a big f- foam fly head and a bag. Of, like, it feels like... like it feels the... like a, an, an entirely different human race almost. It's only I mean? just under three decades. Mm-hmm. And it feels like five, six, or seven decades. Yeah. It feels like the distance from thirties films. Yeah. To you know and that n- kind of style. Now it's like thirty-seven years since this was made. Uh, probably because of, you know in the fifties and forties and fifties and somewhat sixties, that all films kind of followed that same kind of. Ev- Everybody had that kind of voice of, oh, no, I'm doing acting now. I'm actually acting. I, I, I'm the I, one who's on screen and I'm, I'm acting. Oh, what was that you said? As you know, yeah, as you know, I, I, I love old movies. We talked about this before. Um, and I watch them and, and my wife's like, why, why do they all talk like that? And it's fast. They all talk really quickly. They're trying to get to the end of the line. And I, I have a theory. I don't know that it was cheaper to get them to talk quicker than rewrite the script, and they didn't want to pay for an extra film. So they were like, just go quicker. Like, okay, I'm going faster. Wherever that? Here's some exposition. Who's that? Well, it's Vicky Vale. You know, all of that sort of stuff. And, and once it got to a point, because that's how movies had been done, it's very hard to break away from that. Mm. You know, it's really... You've got to be a trendsetter to kind of go, and we're not going to do that. We're yeah. going to do something different. Well, there's that, there's that fascinating thing, isn't there, where, where like movies transitioned over from silent to talkies. And they had that, those early movies, like the, the first Dracula movie and, and those sort of monster movies of those, the 30s and that, but they haven't worked it out. And those films are still classics. They're still great. There's, n- there's no incidental music on those films because they literally went, no, no, we did music in films, we did silent films. We're not doing music anymore. Now we do talking. We don't need it. And it's like, do you still need... But they hadn't worked out. And it's really interesting to watch them work out. So like you say, they get stuck in this mode of... Most films would have been taken from a play. Here's the play. We'll just make that. So they're just reciting the play. Well, you know, we've got to keep this in at under an hour and 20 minutes or whatever. Budget, budget, budget. We could rewrite it. Just speak quicker. You know, it's my theory. (laughs) (laughs) And then it sticks. It's as good a reason as any. Yeah, and then it sticks, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's, yeah, that's it's fascinating, it's, isn't it? It's weird when you think about how short a time period twenty six years is, really, 
and then you go, but I love this movie and it still holds up. And you go, yeah, this is nearly 40 years ago. You're like, oh, right. You know? Yeah, another, another interesting fact. We kind of spoke about it a little bit in... In, in, in regards to John Gett's character, Stathis. Mm. And one of the reasons he he took the role is because he, he appeared to be a stereotypical, unlikable 80s yuppie villain. Yeah. And a villain... Uh, and he was offered, offered the role, but actually became the hero in the end, and that's why he took it. Because he, in his right. eyes, it's that... It, it was the redeeming arc. arc. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. He does save the day at the end. I still... I still, I mean, no, I mean, we we keep keep talking about the special effects. We keep talking about how revolting it is. It is revolting what happened. when he gets his hand melted off. And you're like, oh, I've forgotten how gross. It reminded me a little bit of um, Razor Lost Ark when all their faces melt yes, at the end. Yeah, it's yeah. a similar sort of effect. And then he does his foot, and I'd forgotten about the foot, and I was like, I forgot about this. He literally throws up on his ankle, and it just pulls his foot off. It's so grim. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, and what I like about the performance is that he he does the initial scream, 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 and then there's a point where I think it's when he does his foot, he doesn't scream. Little bit at first. It's think, like, yeah. oh, this no longer hurts because I'm in shock. Mm. You know, just another that's, little bit of realism. That's filmmaking there. right there. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that's the magic on the screen. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I think it's so so well done mm. and there is obviously there's there's a lot of raw footage or a lot of other sequences that apparently were talked about mm. that eventually didn't make the cut and some of those include you obviously we've mentioned the baboon where it almost had a much more horrific horrifying end uh where apparently he was brundle was to send a cat and the surviving baboon through the telepods, resulting in a mutated creature, mm-hmm. which he he eventually would beat to death with a pipe. Uh, <laughs> which, oh, right? Uh, I yeah. think, I think they made the right decision to cut that because I think that would have been it would have been too far for him, for I'm, the character. Do you know what I mean? I think at that point, if if you were a scientist, however good you were, mm. and that happened and you had to physically kill something with a pipe, mm. that I think would be enough for you to go, I need to take a step back here. I'm, I'm assuming it happened after he was already decaying and he was trying to, he was, would have been trying to work out how to undo what happened. Because there is a point in the film where he's obviously trying to work out how to undo the genetic splicing of the fly. And they're like, the best we can do is put more human in you to balance out the fly in you. So I'd assume it's that, but I think you'd find it as an audience member hard to come back and feel any empathy or sympathy for Brundle Fly after you've watched him put a cat and a baboon in a, t- <laughs> in a teleporter Absolutely, and then beat yeah. them to death with a pipe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, obviously we mentioned the scene where he has the, the wing burst out of him. Is it a wing that's popped? Yeah. A wing or a fly arm. Yeah. But an alternate ending was discussed and uh, I think it might have even been shot in which Veronica has another dream of her unborn child, this time as a baby with beautiful butterfly wings. Aww. Which... The fact that it got that reaction when I read it out to you yeah. suggests that it wouldn't necessarily have been in keeping with the overall tone. Also, where did the butterfly come from? 
<laughs> oh, man. Again, we, we introduced a I third think, insect. I no, think that was probably insect. written yeah. by a studio executive <laughs> who hadn't quite realised, no, it needs to be a fly, not just yeah. something that flies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In terms of the makeup, it, whilst this isn't, you know, we've heard horror stories of, I think, Jim Carrey and the Grinch when mm. he was playing, you know, he had to be taught by Navy SEALs how to withstand being buried alive in order to go wow. through the makeup process. But Jeff Goldblum, it took five hours to apply the most extensive makeup stages. Uh, and the final Brundlefly creature is horribly deformed, obviously, and is asymmetrical, which reflects David Cronenberg's idea that creatures should that the creature shouldn't be a giant fly, but rather a literal fusion of man and insects that embodies elements of both, which I, I think is is a really good move because uh, you've described the element of the fifties film, even mm. if you'd have kind of done that in a in an eighties way in an eighties vision. I think that's where it becomes a little bit too kind of... It'd be comical. It's yeah, like the, comical. The, the, and... With your best intentions, if you turn a man into an actual fly, you're going to lose it something. It feels very Mighty Boosh-esque, where <laughs> yeah, you've got yeah. a, a human head on a fly's body, yeah. that type of thing. It, yeah, so I think, you know, made some some interesting... It's made some correct yeah. choices, I think. Yeah, and yeah. obviously, we, we've spoken about different castings... Let's speak mm. about a different director and who okay. could have... And we spoke about comical elements. And uh, if this name was to have directed, it absolutely would have been a much more comical film, in my eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, a very successful director in his own right, Tim Burton. <laughs> who seems to crop up again. And, and Michael Keaton, a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> Just doesn't feel like like Tim Burton and Michael Keaton have made at least three movies together that I'm aware of. Obviously, two, two of them were Batman movies. Yeah, and obviously the other Beetle one Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice yeah. right? so, so this could have been the the fourth in that trilogy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's the fourth in the trilogy. I mate. kind of imagine um, kind of quirky music over the top as he transforms. Oh God, no! You know, I mean, I, I all right. I will. I will. I will. I will say this, a Tim Burton version of The Fly, I think would actually be a good movie, right? It's not this movie at all in any way, shape or form. It's going to be very lighthearted, very comical, very entertaining and very visually pleasing. It's not a horror movie though. Yeah, I think, you know? it, I think it would be the film that kind of explore... Explores a beautiful transition from man into fly. You know, yeah, it, the fly actually makes him a, it, a human being. Yeah, yeah. Almost, if you were to put it in a genre, it would be more coming of age story type film, of course, as yeah, opposed yeah, to body horror, science mm. fiction. Uh, because you know, you look at you look at its kind of trademarks, and that's kind of always been the you know Edward Scissorhands. It's you know, there's a lot of empathy for that character. Yeah. And one of the things we've spoken about with this is that. We do have some em empathy for Seth Brundle, but a lot of it is we're questioning his motivations, we're questioning the humanity of him and of Brundlefly. Uh, mm. So, yeah, it, it would be... Um, yeah, I mean, you are there for the, in this film. You are there for the freak show that is, is going to be unfolded upon Brundle. 
Um, but uh, it's it's just a testament that you do that feel empathy for him along the way, as we said. Even though he's a he's at times a bit questionable with his behaviour, you know. Mm. Tim Burton's not going to make that movie. No, it's, and I th yeah. and if if that had have been the case, then it it would have been different for for obviously for obvious reasons. But also, one of the things that David Cronenberg done when he was hired as director, as he said, one condition is that he he wanted to be able to rewrite the script. So Charles Edward Pogue's initial first draft was then rewritten by Cronenberg, and he altered the characters' uh, dialogue and much of the plot. And only but kind of key details from Pogue's script. Insisted which is the that he got writing credit for it, though, didn't he? Yeah. He uh, said, without, without that initial script, I couldn't have got where I was going. So he insisted that they keep him on there as a writing credit. Yeah. Which is nice. Nice touch for Cronenberg. Yeah, it's know. often, you know, we often hear cutthroat stories. Mm. And that's, a, as you say, a nice little touch and a nice. I'm pretty sure Cronenberg's in this movie as well. Yeah, he plays, he plays one the of the doctors at the... in the dream sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it was him. He tends you to do that. You only see the top half of lot. his head and you go, I'm pretty sure that's Cronenberg. Because I think, if he is, I think he's uncredited. I don't think it's a credited role. Yeah, I think that came from a meeting with Martin Scorsese. I think and I know this story. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah, yeah. You say so you look like a dentist or something like that. So they they had a meeting. I think it was to discuss uh, some of, some of, some of Cronenberg's earlier films. And Martin Scorsese said, upon meeting him, he looks like a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. That's it, which yeah, inspired yeah. Cronenberg to star in the film himself as a doctor. There you go. Uh, yeah. But Cronenberg tends to do that with a lot of his movies anyway. He kind of positions himself in there in bit parts, and he actually as a he does a fair bit of acting himself where maybe not, you know, lead roles, but those kind of little small roles and little mm. kind of quirky little bits in there. So it's not totally unheard of, uh, mm. you know. And it, I think it's interesting, part, you know, part of the success of the film probably does have to be attributed to Mel Brooks as well because yeah. he could have quite easily put his name on it and said, no, no, I want to be credited for this. And I, you know, well, as you said, he 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 done the Elephant Man, mm. but he was he was known for doing those kind of wacky comedies. Mm. And so you hear, you know, let's take off our horror head and we go, a man is fused with a fly. Mm. He's got comedy written all over it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So put Mel Brooks's name to it and it becomes it becomes something which people probably could have gone yeah, to see Seth thinking, Rogen has remade The Fly you know <laughs> uh, he turned um, yeah, no, fly. I mean I think it came out I think I think it got out that Mel Brooks had produced it and I think he he turned up at the premiere and I can't remember what the yeah, story is he, he handed was, he, something out or he was something, handing he? out dealy boppers dealy boppers which are for, dealy bopper. I didn't know well I knew what they were but I didn't know what they were called and yeah. for anybody who's thinking what the hell is a dealy bopper? bopper it's a headband mm. those headbands an Alice band yeah pronged springs bauble, spring bauble, yeah yeah those I mean, things yeah uh, which just sounds like such a Mel Brooks thing to do doesn't yeah. it <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah, no, to his credit, uh, I don't know much about um, Mel Brooks's producing, um, or the films he's produced, I should say. I, like, uh, I knew he'd done The Elephant Man as well. And there's a story about, um, I'm sure it's The Elephant Man, when, is that David Lynch? Did David Lynch do The Elephant Man? I think he did. I think it's Lynch. Yeah. Anyway, 
We're probably wrong. <laughs> Sorry, some very angry people shouting right now. Anyway, so apparently when they showed the the film to the studio, the studio gave them a load of notes about stuff they wanted to change. And apparently Brooks said, no, 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 you misunderstand what's happening here. We're showing you this film to get you up to speed. We're not showing you this film so you can tell us how it should be made and just refuse to let them force... I'm going to say David Lynch, into making um, changes to the film, which is an... Um, I mean, I've always had, like, respect for Mel Brooks as a, as a director and a writer, but to know, like, stuff like that, you're like... My respect for him went through the roof, you know what I mean? Yeah, you need... you need First of all, you need a set. You have to be able to say oh, yeah, that yeah, to man. people paying for these yeah. things. But also, you need a credibility behind you. You know. Yeah, but in this in this case, I, I know I totally agree with you. He's Mel Brooks. He can say that to a studio, but he's Mel Brooks of Robin Hood Men in Tights. I mean, probably not at this point. It would be Blazing Saddles and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And this Space is we're talking horror movies here and stuff. And he's like, no, this is the movie. I know movies well enough to tell you to leave the director alone. That's fascinating to me. You yeah, know because. I mean? Because we hear so many stories about uh, executive and uh, studio interference and how it, you know, we, you know, Alien 3 is a classic example of, mm. you know. That's like the pinnacle of studio absolutely, interference. Absolutely, you know, it, yeah. some of the early drafts of what that was going to be sound amazing. And yeah. whilst yeah. I have a soft spot for Alien 3, controversial. Me too, I yeah, no, I actually don't think it's as bad as people make out. I think it's, it's flawed. It's something that people use as an example. I think it's cool it's, to hate on um, it. Fincher had a horrible time making yeah. it, I think is what, pe what people draw to a lot. And obviously, like you say, the versions they went through to get to that. You know, I think the directors they went through, like, it's just, it's like the writers. It was just endless. Yeah. And then when they finally settled on um, David Fincher, they didn't make his life easy while he was making the movie. And it, the movie suffers for it. But I actually, I, I, Maybe I was was so. What is Alien Three? Ninety two. Ninety three. Ninety three. Yeah. So I I was the right age for it. I would have been about twelve when that came out. I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have known enough about movies to go. Oh, I you know I this doesn't live up to what I was expecting. I wouldn't have had much expectation other than I loved the the well the second first Aliens second Alien movie. Like I loved the Cameron movie. This is more of that. I would have been watching it as a as a twelve year old, thinking this is amazing. So that maybe that clouds my judgment when I watch it. But like you, I have a real soft spot for that movie. I don't think it's anywhere near as bad. Plus, Scorny Weaver shaved the head off, which was really shaved the head off, shaved the hair off. <laughs> <laughs> Shaved her entire That's dedication head off. to the role. Uh, I've, I've never seen her in much after that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah shaved her. That is dedication, isn't it? I mean, yeah, which is in itself is fresh. And it had the scene where the alien, like spoilers, yeah. <laughs> comes up by the side of her, but doesn't kill her. And like, the not, acting, to be fair, the that's acting. not a spoiler. That's very. Much, I think it's in the trailer. Actually, it's in the trailer. Yeah. I think that's most of the. I was. I was material. about to say why it doesn't. And then I thought, oh, that's hence why I said spoilers. And I thought, well, actually, you don't have to go down that road. Yeah. Um, that's a that's another show. Um, yeah, the acting in that. So, that, that, so the, the whole thing about that, that film's amazing. But one, th me. as as we say, one thing they didn't have with that, they didn't have somebody saying, 
putting their foot down saying, no, this is the film yeah. we're making. Mm. We're just telling you, as, as Mel Brooks done. Yeah, we're doing and, you a courtesy. You know, and, yeah, so, right, and yeah. sometimes you absolutely need that. Sometimes studio interference can help because it, it stops a director from doing something where you go, somebody needs to rein him in or somebody needs to go, that's mm. not a good idea. Whereas in most cases, it tends to be, let's put this in here. Mm. You know, I'm thinking, you know, giant spider at the end of a potential Superman <laughs> film type <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, I think, and also the fact that, that I mean, it, they haven't really been able to get an Aliens film right since, I'm going to say since the Cameron, but let's say since three, which is when they really started interfering. So, so the Cameron, I have not, I mean, I assume Cameron would have had some trouble with them making the second one but I assume Cameron just said I know what I'm doing leave me alone and it hadn't quite because I mean it's Aliens is a very different movie from Alien and that's Cameron taking a franchise and making it an action film more than a horror film it's still sci-fi but it's sci-fi action you know um, and then after that each diminishing returns I mean, even the return of Ridley Scott for, for the Prometheus Alien movies mm, I mm, you know I don't I don't hate them Prometheus isn't really an aliens film. It's an origins film. And it's interesting uh, through that lens, looking at it in, in through his own. I don't, I've, I don't think I've ever gone, I really want to watch Prometheus. No, I've, not, I've not done that either. And I think... I think I've seen it twice. I think know? for me, the, doing an origins of something that isn't a character, is a species, mm. is initially intriguing until you start to think about it. Mm. Till you start, um, as soon as you start to think about it, or in this case, as soon as you start to watch a film about it, mm. you realise it's it, it's not going to be it's as unnecessary. As, yeah, yeah, like I mean, that's the thing. Imagine, imagine this though: if Prometheus had not been billed as an aliens prequel, I don't know if it was billed as, but it's an aliens film anyway, and it just slipped a little bit of that in towards the end, you would have gone, huh, interesting. People would have talked about it the same way they talk about Arrival being one of the, you know, one of, okay, I don't yeah, know yeah. if you've seen that, but no, no. it's, I would say, one of the best sci-fi films from the past 15, 20 years, I would say. Right. What you uh, can't see is I'm now writing down Arrival. Yeah, it's Denis Villeneuve. Of, I, want, I, I know want, of it. I, I always want to it. say yeah, Denis Villeneuve because yeah. that's how it looks to me, but it's apparently it's Denis Villeneuve, the guy who done Dune and is doing Dune Part 2 as well. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting take on, on you know, extraterrestrial and alien life form. Mm. I thought, as I said, I've said it previously, where sometimes expectations are the, you know, take the film in a different film. direction yeah, because yeah. suddenly you're trying to you're trying to live up to the way people felt about a film, mm. and you can never really recreate that. You yeah. may be able to create that with new with a new audience, but to recreate it with an old audience, you're never going to do that. I mean, that is that dance Hollywood is constantly playing at the moment. Fan service versus bringing in new um, new fans. Yeah, we're, you know, we're in the age of the remake, remaster, reimagining. Uh, like they just put put the word re in front of other words just to yeah. get away with doing it again. Because that's the thing. From what I can recall, watching Prometheus, because this has now become a podcast about Prometheus. <laughs> It's close, <laughs> close enough, Frank. It's about an alien. It's about a different kind of. Well, actually, no. Um, my overriding memory, like I say, I think I've seen it twice. My overriding memory of when I saw it was I thought if you had just left Aliens, if you just made this as a film on its own, in its own right, I think I would have liked it. And it's not that I don't like it. 
I just don't ever feel a compulsion to watch it. I don't think it's an Aliens movie. Um, I think, on one hand, it, it, I almost respect the studio for getting out of the, the way enough to let him make the movie he wanted to make. I don't think it needed to be an Aliens movie. I think it could have been a movie on its own. Maybe that was the only way he could have get that made. So fair play to him in that respect, you know? Yeah, there's always... But, there's, I mean, those Alien movies in between that... There's always an element of, you know, I always ask the question, okay... Obviously, money is always going to be, a, you know, a motivating factor. Mm. But why are we remaking, or why are we, re why are we revisiting this franchise or this story? Yeah. Why, what are we trying to do? And I think often that's with, with those stories that don't work. It's because they're trying to do all. It's it's paper thin. You can see it's just to make money. Mm. You know, which is why I think if you're going to remake a film, remake a film that people maybe have a soft spot for, but there are a lot of problems with. I mean, that's the thing, like, we talk about, like, the, the Fly is a remake, and they're going to remake it again with I special think, effects. I think there are know. actually discussions over it, there you know. You go, it's, yeah. But it is a remake, and it was a remake of a film, 20, what did you say, 26 years, was it? 28, 28 years after the original. Could you imagine them remaking a film 28 years after, it's 30 odd years after a film come out now, Without people getting lit, like, like so angry about it. He's not my Brundlefly. You know what I mean? And we're talking 40 years later, practically 37. And I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. However, the fly itself is a remake and it's a great remake. And I, th I think one of the reasons it is a good remake is because it does something different. So mm. it's not trying to be okay. Yes, the the, the the central premise is exactly the same because it's it's a remake, but it does something different. It's not not that I've seen it, but from from looking into it, it it's it's not about body horror. It's not about the gruesome kind of. It's, it's about a man trying to find his fly head. <laughs> No, his head on a fly. Sorry. You know, and there must have been people at the time when this remake came out who went, "Oh, they've ruined, they've yeah. ruined the fly." And I, it was a really good movie. He had a giant fly head and a fly arm, and he spent the entire film trying to find a fly. You know, it must I, have been. And I think I, I would accept a fly remake of the '86 version. Mm. If it was going to do something different and if there was a reason for it to re be remade, i.e. we never really explored this element and there's always been questions as, as to what that is. I think There doesn't seem to be a lot of that here. I don't think they left a lot on the table. No. You know what I mean? I think, um, I think the only reason they would make it now, other than money, because as you say, it's all, it's, it is a business, it's all about money, would be because someone would be like, I really want to redo those special effects. Like, uh, like the keenness from the director or the writer will be special effects are really good now. We could do some really interesting stuff with the special effects. But as already discussed on this, those special effects won't hold up in 40 years' time. So, again, why bother? But, it's, it, again, this is just personal opinions, really, isn't it, you know? Yeah, I mean... I would watch it. If they do it, I will go watch it. And I'll go watch it at the cinema. I went to the cinema the other day. And that's exactly what they're counting on. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. you know, oh, I'm I'm much like you, a massive hypocrite in the sense of how can they remake certain things mm. and yet we go and pay, pay our money to, to watch it. Yeah, I went to the cinema the other day on a Saturday night. It was depressing how empty. It was an Odeon. It was depressingly empty. It was like... I got there, I mean, the film didn't start till nine o'clock. I got there about half eight so I could get my big Coke, my big popcorn, and my questionable hot dog. 
classic combination. Yeah, I, I am that person who buys cinema hot dogs. I've yet oh, to, yeah. I'm yet oh, to yeah. fall foul of it. I love them. I think they're, they're so bad, they're good, you know. I think in this instance, we need to ask, you can, but should we? <laughs> <laughs> I do. But I, I always think like, I, I know, I mean, the problem, cinemas are very expensive now. The tickets are very expensive. The confectionery is very expensive. Um, I'm really not looking forward to the day when cinemas don't exist, though. I love going to the cinema, and I will buy overpriced confectionery, and I will pay the price for the ticket because I want to go sit in a room with total strangers and experience a film. Now, I know it's it's like old men lamenting all the things that have gone, but like record shops like don't exist really anymore. HMV basically sells computer games as far as I can work out. And I was very sad about records. I used to like going to big, gross, like Virgin Megastore type Sam Goodies and all of those sort of um, record stores and just going through, looking at albums. Buy, buy albums because of the covers sometimes. It's a very old man thing. The thing is, music still exists. You still experience the music. The content still exists in the same way. You experience it the same. There is no experience like going to the cinema. And I went to the cinema the other day and it was depressingly empty when I went there. Oh, yeah, unf unfortunately, I think we got a little bit of a taste of it during the pandemic whereby big studios were trying to look at a way of still to cash in on hmm. projects. Oh, the film I went to see on Saturday... You can rent at home now. I was in the cinema going, you can sit at home and watch this movie. Like, yeah, I understand it, can... what they do. They say because people pirate it and blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't know what the right, I don't know what the answer is other than I just wish people would still go to the cinema because I will miss the cinema. It's a really it's tricky gone. one because I, I, I'm kind of in both kind of counts where I think these things should be made accessible. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't think we should, you know, I love going to the cinema, but there is some, there is an element of the comfort of your own home is always going to. I hundred percent know. What I you're personally about. would always yeah. say, if if at all possible, try to go to a local th cinema. Yeah. I've got one short short while away from me, and it's brilliant. You don't, you know, you pay. I think the most expensive tickets are six fifty. Yeah, it's almost like concessionary. And prices, you can get, yeah. you can go on on Monday Madness for three quid. Mm. And it's you know, oh, and, yeah. and the and the concessions are decently priced as well. You can get a big big coke and a big popcorn mm. for something like five or six quid. Re reasonably priced. Mm. Unfortunately, you can't get a questionable hot dog. <laughs> uh, no, I I exactly I I agree and I understand one hundred percent what you're saying. I like I said, I don't know what the answer is. Do you know what I mean? Studios need to make money so they can keep making films. I get it. Cinemas need to keep making money so. So as we as we sit here, Cineworld's in receivership again. You know, Odeon's hanging on. I was in an Odeon. I usually go to Cineworld because the parking's better. There isn't really a local cinema around here. We got the um, Duke of York, but that's owned by Cineworld now. I think they sold it all. Um, which I used to like going to the Duke of York. It's a nice cinema, you know. And I, I've got nothing against big multiplex, big chain cinemas like the the View uh, and Warner Brothers cinemas that we used to have. Um, <laughs> we have to pull this eggs. He's about to get really old man lamenting. But genuinely, when I was a kid, you'd go to a cinema. You would queue up round the block to get into the cinema. And I went there on a Saturday night. And there was me, my wife, and I'm going to say 
12 other people in the whole room watching this movie. Yeah, yeah. ironically, the only way you'd be queuing up around the block is due to social distancing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, I do kind of... Well, one, I don't know what the answer one is. One thing yeah. I, I, you know, when you see your big American movies and you see those movie theatres, mm. not cinemas, movie theatres, which yeah. is what my, my local cinema is a theatre mm. that has a cinema. It's, and, you know, it, may, it has a completely different feel to it. Mm. But those kind of classic, where, you, you know, big kind of black lettering, you've got the name, the film. Yeah. You know, I, unfortunately, we're kind of moving right? away. Uh, yeah. yeah we're, we're moving away from that. And as you say, there is kind of no real answer yeah. apart from... Buy a bigger TV. Because <laughs> I think you can buy 70-inch TVs. I don't, I, I don't TVs. need any encouragement to buy a bigger TV. How big's TV. your TV at the moment? I was 65 inches. 65 and inches. I constantly look at it and go... I need more. We could get another... We can get a 75-inch and it would be fine. I had this argument with my wife a lot. When we got our last one, it's 55 inches. I said it wasn't big enough. She said it was too big. We went with 50. I wanted to go 65, 70, something like that. I was like, well, and no matter how big your TV is, you get used to it. It's so it, it looks ridiculous at first. The first like few days, you put it. I remember when I got my first 42 inch flat screen in our flat. I walked into the living room the, the day after. So we put it up, set it up, and I watched it. It was all good, you know. Went to bed, got up the next day, walked in the living room, looked at it, and I burst into laughter because it looks so ridiculously big. 42 inch TV. How small they look now, you know. You just get used to it. So even even if even if I had an 80 inch TV. I still would miss the cinema. We basically you know? need what Barney has in How I Met Your Mother, where it's just a whole wall of screen. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing, I mean, even if, say you was like a super rich dude and you had a cinema room, an actual cinema room in your basement, I would still miss going to the cinema. I don't miss spending all my money. But, <laughs> you know, the worst thing is, like, when you, like, when you spend your money in the film's rubbish. And I think, like, people... I can't really blame them. People are like, well, I don't want to pay to watch this movie. It might be bad. I can download it for free or I can I can illegally download it or I can stream it or I can spend half the money I'm going to spend. And all of those, I can wait a month and it'll be out on Netflix or on Sky. Or, I understand all of those arguments and I, I, I don't, I'm not saying people are wrong for it. I'm not saying, that, I don't even know, I don't think the studios are wrong for wanting to stream it necessarily at the same time because it will just end up online and they won't make any money. You know, and no films will get made. All of these things, but on a on a very personal level, I I like going to the cinema. After the pandemic, when we couldn't go, uh, me me and my wife were just like, we're gonna go to the cinema and watch everything. I don't care, even if it's rubbish. I just want to go to the cinema. You know? Yeah, and I think spoilers, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I I do think there are there are films that are made for cinema. I would watch The Fly remake. At the, the Fly cinema. is yeah. one of those films mm. just to bring it back on topic. Yeah. Because we have diverted. Well, big special effects movies, I think space movies specifically. I went to the cinema to watch Gravity when it came out. Because I was like, I could watch that at home. I want to see it on the biggest screen I can see it. I want to I feel that sense of nausea, you know. You want to be in, in space with them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever, you've been to the cinema and they've got the. Um, do they call it Ford? It's not Ford. The, the wraparound screens, I can't think what they call it. Cinema IMAX? Do it. No, it's different from the IMAX. So IMAX do like, obviously, it's huge. I love the IMAX, man. 
I went to IMAX to watch a 3D underwater film there once. <laughs> that made me He's feel never queasy. been in the sea since. Um, and and Cineworld do that 4D experience where the, I guess yeah, they blows yeah. them. But they do another thing where the screen comes up the side. I've seen, yeah, since I'm... I can't there. think what they call it no. off the top of my head. Um, doesn't add a lot to the movie, but I've watched that thinking of a space movie with this going on would be amazing, you know. Yeah, it's it is a shame, but hopefully, hopefully the Fly remake can bring Cinema Ghost back yeah, to the cinema, and I'll probably buy it on several copies of Blu-ray yeah, DVD just so, as well. Just so that if you are going to put your film in alphabetical order, there will be a whole shelf dedicated to the, the Fly. Because <laughs> that's the thing, right? DVDs are now really cheap. Second-hand DVDs, like yeah, DVDs, yeah. like twenty quid or whatever twenty years ago, you know. You can buy an entire box set for like 90p second hand now. And I'm like, is our DVDs and Blu-rays, um, are they going to have that same revival that vinyl had at some point and become ridiculously sought after? Because vinyl records were garbage. They were trash. People used to throw them away until a few years ago, you know? Yeah, it's certainly interesting when you look at how the way in which you know it's all about streaming and mm. but one thing that we've certainly found putting together these podcasts is you go to one you want to watch your f- certain film and you go how is that not on any streaming platform it's crazy isn't it oh you can rent it on everything yeah i'd rather buy a copy and have something physical to hold in my hand but the thing how much do you miss read, you know yeah how much do you miss going to a, a video rental store to, like as as we've gone down this rabbit hole yeah. of it's like the, the movie industry is dude or at least the way we consume our, our our content is so different like you say i i even miss blockbuster and i used to like going to the little like you say independent video store around the corner literally around the corner from me and i remember when netflix came out and he was like Oh, I'm glad we haven't. So I used to go there every Saturday and I'd grab like, oh, every Sunday, sorry. I'd grab like three three movies for five quid or whatever it was, you know. And he was like, I'm glad we haven't lost you to Netflix. I was like, oh, I've got Netflix, but it's not the same, you know. I like to go to video stores. But he was gone within a year and then Blockbuster was gone. I mean, the whole Blockbuster thing yeah. is hilarious, I mean, man. You know, I mean, we could do a, they a, whole, a whole podcast just on that alone, couldn't yeah, we? You know, yeah. uh, Netflix, ha, not bothered about them six months later, Blockbuster's gone. You well, know? Netflix went to Blockbuster and said, Do you want to come in on this? Because yeah. we can use some money. And they went, that, That'll never take off. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, and that's gone. I used to love. Going to Blockbuster on a Friday, Saturday night, watever, Sunday even. Get your foot, sit there, go through all the movies, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it. Oh, I've not seen that. Not seen that one. How many killings? (laughs) Exactly. And then, you know, you'd get some, you'd maybe get a McDonald's because that was next door, or you'd get a big bag of popcorn, all of those things, all those things that don't exist anymore that you miss, the smell of a Blockbuster. But then, added to that is what you're saying how is this not available for streaming somewhere or why have i got to pay four pound fifty to rent a movie that came out 50 years ago if the video shop was still here it would be 50p for a week <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah it's part of that it, you know it's that almost making it an occasion isn't it mm. the blockbuster was kind of one step away from we can't quite afford to go to the pictures so let's go and rent the film yeah two for you two know? for a tenner or it, something it was, like it, i remember yeah. in, in my house it was an occasion like, oh we're gonna go down the video shop on friday night why well because it's friday night movie night exactly you know yeah. and that has gone it, it's been replaced unfortunately with 
scrolling through Netflix or Prime or whatever yeah. streaming content and giving you up use. on movies after ten minutes because they're boring. and watching something you know you've seen a thousand yeah. times. Yeah, or not. I also it. miss trailers. Yeah, the trailers at the beginning of something uh, movies that me, you've and, rented. me and my yeah. wife do. Yeah. is we go on YouTube and we find a we use we use KinoCheck little plug, uh, and they release every so often cup every couple of weeks. 30 movie trailers in one video and we just watch them. I don't know if I watch the same people, but yeah, I watch... Yeah, I mean, anyone who listens to this podcast, say, it will be quite apparent how much we listen to trailers and things. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, I could spend you, hours watching old movie trailers. Of, I remember yeah. when you used to go and watch films, it used to be, what are the... What, what am I going to watch next? What almost? are the trailers yeah. going to be for this? And that's how you would... Mm. If you wanted to to sell a film, you put a trailer on mm. a big film. Yeah, uh, and same again with videos and DVDs. Like I can always remember my dad saying, "You, you pay all this money for this new DVD, and I can't skip anything. I can't." And I was like, "Why would you want to skip it? Let's watch the trailers. That's what's great because you yeah. go and you go." That looks good. Oh, oh yeah, we keep an eye out for that. Yeah. It that was always an on-running joke back in the that. day that the trailers are better than the movie you're going to watch. Yeah, because they show you the best bits of the movies. You get like three or four in. You know what I mean? I always, I still find it weird though when you go to the cinema and they advertise going to the cinema to people that are in the cinema. I'm like, might want to put this advert out somewhere else. <laughs> I think you've got this audience down. You know what I mean? Like, go to the cinema, have a coke. You know, it's like well, I'm already here, mate. Yeah, you know, so, you, you've got my yeah. money. You don't need to sell me anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. yeah. Well, I suppose we better get back to the uh, actual podcast. Now we've digressed down to Old Man Lane. Yeah. We have, we have. So we've kind of covered, in some ways, the impact. But is there anything else we want to we want to look at in terms of the impact of this film? I've forgotten what film we're talking about. That went on for so long. Uh, no, um, uh, the impact. <laughs> No, I mean, again, it's, I mean, it's 1986. The special effects are amazing. Um, Chris Wallace, I think, was the the man who won the Oscar for it. Um, It's amazing. I don't think there's much more really to be said. I just needed to get his name out there because I couldn't remember it earlier. It's the film that launched um, Jeff Goldblum. I don't know if it's the film that made Gina Davis a star. I could well see it being that movie, though. Uh, apologies, Certainly I don't put her on, know. on the right track. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I think she's really underrated in this. We haven't really spoken too much about her, but I, I think she's really underrated because, you know, you could... Ver- again, we've spoken about, about Laura Dern in, in Jurassic Park episode, mm. but it could very easily be just a scream fest. And there's elements of that, but it's 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 nuanced and it's there's the right level of that. And yeah, the, I mean know. she's yeah again again like we said, there's only really three main players in this film, and you have to have a certain amount of peril. So she is there for that, but she's also she's the audience. She's the she's your way into this movie. You go in through her. Mm. She's she's a reporter, fair enough, you know. So she's probably seen a lot of stuff, and she's you know she works for. Oh my god, what's the magazine? It's so bad. Was it like Proton Magazine or something? It's got a really, really bad name. 
like take another part. So it's like it's like Proton magazine or something. Something really it, it's really on yeah. the nose. Yeah. So it's a science magazine. Uh, uh Proton? Yeah. It's uh, I think his license plate even says it like P R T O N or something. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, she's your way in. And she doesn't she there's not a lot of her screaming or being um uh, I would say a victim throughout the film. You know, it's, it's, damsel in distress. Yeah, there's, there is it's there is elements of it towards the end, but it's it's like her character is amazing. Like, like, and her performance, like you say, is is really really good. Like, it's exactly the right level of just normal. She just seems like a normal person. She's not hysterical. She's smart. She takes the the hairs off his back and goes and gets them analysed. Um, because she's like something's up, and he's like everything's fine. And she's like no, it's not, you know. And then there's the scene where she's like, I want it out of my body, and all of that. Which, I mean, can you imagine even putting a uh, this basically two abortion scenes in this movie? You couldn't even mention the word in a movie made now the way things are. You know what I mean? And yeah, there's, there's there's the dream sequence abortion. And then they go to go, and literally says, I want this out of my body. I don't want to wait and all of this sort of stuff. And they go to the clinic. Um, spoilers, Brundlefly turns up. <laughs> um, uh, great, great. But like that scene, it's done so well. Like you, you can empathize with her completely, but it's not hysterical. She's not like, <laughs> you know, it's really like, no, I know what I want. Diddle dirt, you know, because you see her struggle with it. She has the dream. She's it's she's go back, going back and forth. She goes there to tell him, and then decides not to tell him. You know, what I mean, it's like the whole the whole character and her arc is amazing. Like I say, she's your way into this film. The audience's eyes. She's she's as amazed and horrified as by what's going on as you are as the viewer, um, and it is a, a standout performance. Yeah. And I think, in terms of you know strong female characters, obviously we've spoken briefly about the Alien franchise, which has its you know strong female character and Ellen Ripley. But mm. I think we also need to have strong supporting female characters in films, yeah. and this is a film that kind of hits the right the right balance. Mm. I think more often than not, we we see characters, and not just female characters, but characters in general that aren't realistic and aren't you know relatable they're kind of you know they're doing things that you would you question and really just aren't ways you would react in yeah. in, in a real world circumstance however uh however did you know however surreal the situation that, that they find themselves in uh i think impact wise Obviously, we've spoken about the, the practical effects. Mm. I think it's it's one of those films where it's it, it again. It's not going to have set set the trend or set the tone for things, but it's certainly one of those prime examples where you go, "Here's a really good example. Here's a really good example of this." Yeah, it's like without without overlabouring the point again, because we seem to keep coming back to it a lot um, with these podcasts about practical facts. Effects versus versus CGI. Here's an example of why we feel the way we feel about it. Look at these effects. Yes, it's rubbery, little, 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 all of those things. It still looks amazing nearly 40 years later. I, it still gives you a visceral effect when you're watching this movie of like, uh, uh, you know, 
like you said, your wife couldn't even watch it, half of it, you know, because um, it made her feel that uncomfortable, which is great stuff. I mean, as far as impact, it's really hard for me to say, ob uh, like, object subjectively, objectively, sub yeah, subjectively, about the impact of this movie, because I have a, a strange obsession with it. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I've been meaning to ask you about these two telepods that you've got <laughs> as we record well, this. There's that great bit at the beginning of the film, is I can't let you go, you've seen them, You'll, uh, you know, I can't let you leave here alive now. <laughs> this is a nice little touch, because I was thinking it when she got like... You couldn't make this film now. She wouldn't go back there with him. In the 80s is a very different time, you know what I mean? But he he is sitting there playing the piano. And she's like, I'm going to go, you weirdo. And he's like, I can't let you leave. Which was like, actually him playing the piano as well. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Excellent, man. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah. I mean, it spawned, spawned a sequel that I think is nowhere near as good from what I remember, but it's considered a cult classic now. And they are going to remake it. They, they can't help themselves. And I will go and watch it. Um, it's Cronenberg's most successful film. For me, it's his best because, obviously, uh, for reasons I've already stated, I love this movie. Um, it's there isn't a bad performance in it. It's got it's Brundlefly and Gina Davis's standout breakthrough roles, and I don't think he's bettered it. Gina Davis is solid in most films you'll you'll see her in. To be fair, you know what I mean, and it is the movie, like we say. Have it. It's interesting because I know like how big a fan of Jurassic Park you are, and like we were talking about before, you Jeff Jeff Goldblum and you is Jurassic Park. Jeff, do you? And you were saying like now you do next time you watch Jurassic Park, you you'd be like because I kept when we did the Jurassic Park, I kept referring to him as Brundlefly, and because it had been so long <laughs> since I'd seen it, yeah, like. I, obviously, we can see each other. You, you guys are just listening, yeah. but in my head, I'm going Brundlefly. Why does he keep mentioning Brundle? Who's he referring to when he says Brundlefly? And it was only, it was only upon thinking, oh yeah, he was in the fly. I wonder what the guessing that's, that and was, then yeah. then it makes more sense. So yeah, that yeah. that's kind of you know how I started this with. It's one of those ones that I kind of always forget about, mm. and I have no real reason why because it because it's great. It's not. Yeah. Do you think next time you watch Jurassic Park, though, you'll be going, it's Brundlefly? I think I probably will because I, Cause you know, Jura Mac, Jurassic Park yeah. is, is essentially my childhood Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. And I think now my adult Jeff Goldblum <laughs> is the fly, <laughs> which, which sounds really sinister. Now I'm a man. I'm uh, <laughs> really homoerotic, but it, it yeah. you know, you sometimes, I was thinking about it, you know, with, with Michael Caine, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times. Uh, I can't, I don't know Michael Caine before he was the caricature of Michael Caine. Yeah, and so, I mean, he was always, my name is Michael Caine. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. it's that interesting thing of like, bef getting over your own preconceptions of an actor or, or of a film. Yeah. So in terms of further watching, yeah. what, are, what are going to be some of the things that we would be recommending to our listeners as films they should also check out if they like The Fly. So, obviously, the remake that they're inevitably going to do. <laughs> I would watch the 1958 original. You're, you probably won't like it. It is a 1958 horror movie. I love it. It's, I think if you really like this movie, you should go back and check it out. Just out of, I was going to say respect, but it's probably not the right word. Just that curiosity, I think, to see what they, what Cronenberg and the, and, and the script writers took to make the fly I personally like I like old films like I said I think they're charming um, I think The Thin The Thing sorry by um, 
John Carpenter. It's probably another good, good, good movie. Similar sort of era, similar, not subject matter at all, but it's got that body autonomy sort of element to it as well, where, you know, people's bodies are being taken over. Um, and it's a sort of sci-fi horror. Um, I've wrote down Misery. Um, it's got that claustrophobia, but again, body autonomy sort of thing, you know. It has a main central location, doesn't it, that very we keep few, returning to? Yeah, you're basically two main actors throughout the whole film. There's yeah. also this stuff going on in the peripherals. Um, I also wrote down the Evil Dead franchise. Now, that's a bit of a leap, to be fair. Um, but it's, but like the special effects sort of, if you're thinking special effects wise, I would go sort of down Evil Dead. Plus, I love the Evil Dead trilogy. New, there's a new version of that coming out now. Talking about Evil Dead Rise, Evil Dead Rise. Which looks pretty. I mean, I the, will be going to the cinema to watch it. Yeah. yeah, the 2018 Evil Dead was pretty good, and Evil Dead Rise is, is supposed to be on the same kind of trajectory as the 2018 the success Evil of that. Dead. Takes a lot of criticism. I actually don't think it's that bad. I think I, it's quite a good movie. I think it's that whole we talk it's about things going cycles. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, expectations as well, mm. but. I, because I remember when that came out, everybody was saying it's it's brilliant, it's perfect, it it does the right amount of homage to the original, takes it in a new direction, it's scary. Mm. And then there was that turn where people started saying that too much and people then started to hate on it and start taking it. Well, it's interesting because people were like, it hasn't got ash in it. So then they gave you the TV show and people went, oh, he's old. It's like, uh, you can't you win. Yeah, you I mean, can't yeah. win. Um, and finally, um, the other thing I'd recommend is Tetsuo Iron Man um, from 1989. Very similar, um, not plot, but uh, threads about bodies being taken I don't over. I don't think I've heard of that one. Oh, it's, it's kind of, I would say, classic. It's a Japanese horror uh, movie. Sort of predate, think. It predates all the, the famous, like the ring 90s, and all of that. Jack, Jack yeah, horror type but thing. you can't get there without yeah, uh, yeah. Tetsuo Iron Man. There's a, there's a few of those. But yeah, it's essentially very loosely. So, some dudes into body modifications with putting metal into his body and all of this sort of stuff. He, I think he gets run over um, and then the people who run him over suddenly are cursed. I think it's got something to do with maggots in it. I forget now. Yeah, it's it's very similar um, threads that they're following, and it's very unsettling. It's a black and white movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but when I was thinking of like movies of a similar ilk, that popped up in my mind, and I was like, I'm going to go watch that again because I just watched The Fly. Um, so maybe somebody else might want to. You know? <laughs> uh, what about yourself? Uh, the ones that kind of stuck out to me is obviously Scanners. Uh, of course. Another yeah, Cronenberg yeah. and Videodrone as well. Uh, another Cronenberg film. Uh, one that is well and truly a cult classic and is definitely a step towards uh, almost so bad it's good, but Reanimator. I've seen that for a very long time. I mean, though. it's yeah. bad, don't get me wrong. But it, it's I that, like a bad movie, though. It's it's that same, it, it deals with some of those same themes mm. and those same kind of, uh, you know, scientists mm. do, dancing with, with, with difficult things. Mm. And then also one for more kind of, in terms of the 
practical kind of effects. One that stood out to me, it's a bit of a stretch, but Hellraiser, the way, you know, there's there's oh, a lot of where you make there's the, a lot the of visual uh quite gruesome things to watch and that's you know if the fly's got a foot in horror then hellraiser is is pretty much under the covers with horror mm. uh again it's that sort of body horror yeah yeah, yeah. yeah there's you know it's, it's a bdsm kind of horror movie really isn't absolutely it? You know yeah. I mean? yeah yeah it's a good call i can see where you make that connection man so yeah. those are the ones that kind of stuck out, stuck out to me yeah uh yeah perfect so i can see where you yeah it's a good call hellraiser which they've also just remade. <laughs> so we're gonna, every time we talk about a movie, we're like, yeah, they're about to remake it. They have just remade it. I haven't seen the, the Hellraiser no, remake. I will watch I. it. I will yeah. watch it. It can't be any worse than the straight to DVD Hellraiser. There's like 500 of them or it's something. It's when they recast you know I mean? the dude who played Pinhead, where it's, I mean, it would already started to go downhill by that mm. point. Yeah. So I think Clive Barker kind of took a step back from it. First three um, are okay, as I recall. Yeah. But third one's pretty good for a for a for the third movie in a franchise, Diminishing Returns. We always talk about it. So as I recall, the third one's not that bad. I may be mistaken. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Uh, yeah, uh, just and uh, yeah, one one other reason why I picked Hellraiser is because there's a, there's quite a lot of some of those uh, those beings. Not obviously you've the got Cenobites. Pinhead, but the others. There's, you there's, opened the box, there, we came. There, hey, <laughs> hey, you're not the only one who can do impressions, lad. Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ, not quite. <laughs> oh, Kirsty, so eager to play, that's so reluctant to admit it. Do you know what's funny? You put an accent on that, you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, Kirsty. <laughs> yeah, you opened the box, <laughs> I, I became Jamaican. <laughs> No, I want to see Schwarzenegger as a Jamaican. Uh, yeah, it would just be Mister Freeze with pins in his head. Uh. Some of some of those characters that you know they're they're de- I suppose deformed is the right word, where similar kind of look in the sense of it's it's there's elements of human, but it's 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 morphed in a way. That's a good point. That, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So that's very, right. I wouldn't say incredibly similar, but mm. along the right kind of lines there so that's kind of why I pick, pick that out and it's a great movie as well yeah you good know? cool JML teleporters bang and the fly is gone So that was Bury Our Bones with for this week. We hoped you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Please don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us in all the usual social media places as Bury Our Bones with. So please do come by, say hi and send us your comments. Until next time, I've been Jimmy Murphy, he's been Ryan Edrington and this has been Bury Our Bones with The Fly. Maybe if you listen to it, let's see if it sounds.
I remember Blockbuster. Back in my day. Do you remember Blockbuster? I remember when they had they, they had stables outside for the horses. <laughs> I'm gonna see if I hit all my notes. Oh, I didn't talk about Howard Shaw, the composer, because the music is is amazing in that movie as well. Almost don't even notice the score. Yeah, that's that, that is exactly what I said. Mm. You forget it's there until those moments where yeah. it pops in. Yeah, we'll cut that bit in. <laughs> <laughs> also, I've just remembered I want to talk about Howard Shaw. I really like music in this. It's great. It's great. Howard Shaw, you don't even know it's there. 